The way we understand poverty defines our politics. The problem is, we don't understand poverty. Michigan is the new front lines in the fight against tar sand pipelines. And their new strategy is truly revolutionary. The U.S. Christian far right that's connected to President Trump is funding the rise of Europe's far right right before European parliamentary elections. And it's really pissing off Europe and not getting covered here in the U.S. There's a new feminist manifesto for the 99%, and it's very, very mooey anti-capitalist. A past guest is out of prison and under house arrest, and he'll get us caught up on what's happening in Turkey, especially with tomorrow's Turkish presidential election coming up. Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And this week, for me, it's all about respect. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell This Week's Live 4-Hour. This is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston. Streaming live right now at thisishell.com. Is that correct, Alex? Where are we streaming live? Yes, I can't believe it. Oh, my God. That's how easy it is. All you have to do is just go to thisishell.com. And that's where we're streaming live and podcast in its entirety shortly after at the same website. Thisishell.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio and follow us on Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio and on Instagram at ThisIsHell. On this week's This Is Hell, the major global financial institutions have done their very best at depoliticizing poverty, but our first guest says we need to do the opposite and repoliticize the field of poverty studies. We'll lead off this week's lineup with social policy and development studies scholar Andrew Martin Fisher, author of Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing Social Justice from Global Development. According to Andrew, the absolute metrics used to measure poverty aren't as objective as groups like the World Bank want you to think they are. In fact, those numbers are very subjective. The measurements seem to do nothing but reinforce neoliberalism, no matter what evidence there is, in how neoliberalism has any impact or effect on poverty. Andrew is Associate Professor of Social Policy and Development Studies at the Institute of Social Studies. He has worked with and advised various multilateral agencies and NGOs, including the United Nations Development Program, UNICEF, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch. Andrew won the 2015 International Studies in Poverty Prize awarded by the Comparative Research Program on Poverty. In the second hour of this week's Hell, we'll start with a report from the front lines of the battle against war tar sands pipeline development, like the fight that took place back in the winter of 20, uh, 2017 at Standing Rock. It seems that confrontation with the purveyors of climate change has now moved on to God's little mitten, Michigan. We'll find out what's happening when we talk to Duncan Tar and Noor Usaba 
who co-wrote the Commune magazine article, The End of the Line, The Rusting Fossil Fuel Infrastructure of the Upper Midwest, connects the poisoned residents of Flint to the wreckage of Alberta's oil sands. Can it also become the backbone for a new movement against planet-killing capitalism? In the Great Lakes State, new ways of confronting even stopping fossil fuel exploitation are being developed. Why in Michigan? Because it's the crossroads for the biggest trade partner with the United States, Canada. And Canada's going tar sands crazy for the most environmentally destructive fossil fuel yet. You can find Duncan and Noor's article at communemag.com. Noor is an organizer, farmer, and musician currently residing in Detroit, Michigan. Duncan is a writer and organizer and is involved with the groups Michigan Abolition and Prison Sol Prisoner Solidarity, MAPS, and Solidarity and Defense, and he lives in Lansing, Michigan. You can find out more about Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity at michiganabolition.org. You can learn more about Solidarity and Defense at Solidarity, then the letter N, defense.net. Who knew there was somebody else out there who has a .net URL? Then in the second half of our second Hour. An investigation into the funding of far-right groups in Europe has turned up a dozen U.S.-based far-right Christian groups who have spent at least $50 million to help the rise of white supremacy in Europe. And with the news about Russiagate, you'll love this one, apparently many of the groups funding the European far-right are linked to, you guessed it, President Donald Trump and his administration, especially Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. In fact, it may be an entire global conspiracy, including fascists from Russia, Spain, Italy, and everywhere. And Europe is freaking out about this as European parliamentary elections are going to be taking place in May. We'll have the return of editor Claire Provost, who co-wrote the OpenDemocracy.net article, revealed Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe, boosting the far right. Claire is editor of Open Democracy 5050, covering gender, sexuality, and social justice. You may remember us discussing this project shortly after it was launched in February of 2018 when we spoke with Claire's colleague, Lara White. Claire was on This Is Hell back in July 2016 with investigative journalist Matt Kennard to discuss an article they had co-written for In These Times. Inside the Corporate Utopias Where Capitalism, Rules, and Labor Laws Don't Apply. You can hear that interview at our website, thisishell.com, by just searching on Claire's name, Claire Provost. After we've discussed poverty as a political ideology, Michigan's revolutionary fight against pipelines, and how the Trump-linked U.S. Christian far-right is funding the rise of white supremacy in Europe in our third hour. There is a new feminist manifesto, and this one is anti-capitalist through and through. We'll find out what's what it's all about when we have the honor of speaking with writer and philosopher Cinzia Aruza, co-author of Feminism for the 99% of Manifestos. Cinzia wrote the manifesto with past This Is Hell guest Tithi Bhattacharya and with hopefully upcoming This Is Hell guest Nancy Fraser. By being anti-capitalist, feminism can be for everyone, no matter your gender identity. It, it can lift all our boats before they all sink in rising waters caused by global warming. Anti-capitalism intersects feminism with all other social justice movements, and the new wave of feminism is already at the forefront of many of those movements around the world. Cinzia is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the New School of for Social Research, Cinzia was one of the main organizers of the international women's strike in the United States and is a member of the editorial collective of Viewpoint magazine. You can find out more about Viewpoint at viewpointmag.com. Then in the fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell, we are very happy to have the return of recently released from Turkish jail and now living under house arrest in Ankara, political scientist, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast, who co-wrote 
the Jacobin article, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. Max uh, will tell us why he was arrested and what he expects to happen at his upcoming April 11th trial. But wait, there's more. Max will also explain not only what tomorrow's presidential election means for incumbent Recep Erdogan, but also the state of Turkey's failing economy. It's nearly intractable, but always contradictory position. And now the Turkish people may be getting fed up with Erdogan's authoritarian tendencies after all. You can find Max's article at jacobinmag.org. You can also follow Max's case on Twitter at hashtag free Max Zerngast and at Max Zerngast, that's Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. He first appeared on our show back in July of 2016. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. And now I've got to look up what Jeff's moment of truth is about because I have forgot and I didn't paste it in there. Uh, during the moment of truth, Jeff pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. And depending on how things go during my monologue, I just may earn your respect or your disrespect. Who knows? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, what's new about the show is uh, Claire is not going to be on the show. Her colleague Nandini is going to be. Uh, I will send you a, I'll run over a note with all the information. All right. And also for reasons that I can't say publicly. All righty. But it's interesting. <laughs> all right. I, I kind of want to hear that now. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. Uh, this week's hangover cure is the most expensive cure at an article about hangover cures. That's clearly an ad at what very well may be the worst magazine in the world, Men's Journal. Why do we pick the most expensive? To hopefully make certain you don't buy it. In the article with the clever headline, the top 10 rated hangover cures, <laughs> Men's Journal offers only hangover cures that can be purchased online. So if you want to increase your carbon footprint and cure your hangover, then this is the cure for you. Men's Journal suggests a product called Drinkwell, with one L, and says, loaded with antioxidants, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, and a proprietary blend of super fruits and botanicals. <laughs> this is not your typical multivitamin. You'll also get organic milk thistle, reishi mushroom, artichoke leaf, and other botanicals, plus a full B complex and vitamin C. Pick up Drinkwell for $38 for 30 <laughs> capsules online. That makes this week's hangover cure. Some expensive BS you can ignore because it's from that crap factory, Men's Journal. I really hate that magazine. Uh, there are some magazines, for whatever reason, get sent to Carrie's Lounge, and every so often I'll look through them. Men's Journal is the absolute worst. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Yes, there was big news. Huge news this past weekend. A squirrel got in my basement. Oh, and the Mueller report was released, but the squirrel had a far greater impact on me than the report. But you can only hear my thoughts on meddling squirrels and meddling Russians by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Instead, this morning, I want to talk about something that is completely unrelated in any way to the Mueller investigation, the coverage of the investigation, and both the right and left's take on Russiagate. And that completely unrelated in any way to Russiagate topic is dignity and respect. 
We've been talking about feelings a lot lately on the show, the inspiration of radical happiness, the passion of pleasure activism. Oh, and congratulations to recent guest Adrian Marie Brown, whose book Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, is now on the New York Times bestsellers list. We spoke with scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, about reclaiming humanity. Damaris writes about the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. We've talked about the political power of mourning. We've discussed the plague of loneliness and depression neoliberalism has created. And we've heard from plenty of people who have ideas of how to dig ourselves out of that funk imposed on us by the precariousness of late capitalism. But somehow... We've missed the importance of dignity and respect. Last week, we started the show by talking to Barnaby Rain, a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern uh, European political thought, who wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. Barnaby writes something in his article that I never got around to discussing with him or even reading the quote on air. Barnaby argues, quote, the Palestinian people do not inspire the world simply because they suffer. What we see through the cracks in Palestine is what many once saw in Nicaragua and South Africa and Vietnam. Against the violence produced by fear, against anxious states killing in the defense of privilege, the best traditions of the oppressed offer a universal message. They prize dignity. Clearly, this is demand by those who have or had respect and dignity in short supply. Palestinians, South Africans, Nicaraguans, Vietnamese. Because of the institutionalized, disrespectful, and undignified ways in which they were or are treated. So while I cannot fully understand that lack of respect and dignity that they experience, that's not going to stop me from speculating about it. Why should it? Just just because I have no idea what the experience of persistent disrespect and dignity is like doesn't mean I can't guess what it's like. I mean, what harm can that do, right? Right? What bad thing ever came out of endless speculation towards something that you are completely clueless? So what's the big attraction of dignity and respect? Why do we value admiration of our abilities, qualities, or achievements? What's the big deal about our actions impressing people or winning the approval of others? I mean, outside of the context of those who are prohibited by white supremacy from being respected, to this privileged white dude, respect and dignity just sound like a big ego stroke to affirm exactly how self-satisfied I am, how smug I am about my certainty. If you put dignity in Google, the first suggestion for your search topic is examples of dignity, which is really weird. Are we so detached and disconnected from a sense of dignity amongst ourselves that far too many of us are rushing to our smartphones, tablets, and computers wondering, what are examples of dignity? It's as if they're looking for hangover cures, but the throbbing headache they want to eliminate is disrespect. When you click on examples of dignity, Google takes you to the dignityincare.org.uk website because, of course, that's a web address that's in the UK and not in the US. While Dignity in Care is a site that focuses on the dignity and care of the elderly and assisted living, it states the following are some examples from people when they felt their dignity was not respected. Being made to feel worthless or a nuisance, being treated more as an object than a person, feeling privacy was not being respected, being addressed in ways they find disrespectful, being treated like children, generally being rushed and not listened to, 
And that does suck. And I do have some, but very little experience in this because I am a legally blind person who people, when people are looking at me and seeing how I squint and how I hold reading material just off the tip of the end of my nose, people have made me feel worthless by feeling that it's perfectly fine to mimic my squinting or the way I read when they would never mock a person for being in a wheelchair. I've been treated as an object by sighted people who talk about me and how I can be helped as if I don't exist, as if, even though I'm standing right there. I'm legally blind, not legally deaf. In fact, because I depend on my hearing so much, I hear pretty damn well. Far better than many people realize who fling disrespect at me. But hell, I'm not going to let on. I want to keep hearing all those incredibly mean things people honestly say about me. Because I need large print to read, I type in large print too, and far too often I've had people start reading what at times is very private content without asking, to the point of commenting on grammar and spelling errors. Then there's the intense invasion of privacy the disabled have to go through to get assistance from agencies that is needed for survival in a world that discriminates against the hiring of people they see as handicapped and an unreasonable risk to their insurer. All people with dis disabilities have felt like they are being treated like children, condescended down to by those who believe they, that our, our entire being is inferior. Ever notice how abled people on telethons celebrate disabled kids and very rarely will you see an adult, a disabled adult? That's because they infantilize us and only see us as children who desperately need their parental support and guidance. Just look at the way they look at disabled people. Then look at their face when they are talking to a toddler. It's the same smiling face, and I've seen it a million times. Now I'm angry, because even though I am a white privileged dude, damn it, I'm still the target of some level of disrespect. Of course, not as much disrespect as others, but enough to suddenly piss me off. And what's up with having to earn respect? Why would anyone ever withhold respect from another person? Why would we not, without hesitation, have concern for others' feelings, wishes, rights, or traditions. No, pal, you gotta earn that respect. I'm not sure what you have to do to earn that respect, but apparently there's some sort of exchange in our society just for someone to give you any sense of dignity. Maybe you have to paint a fence or marry into a family or tell your viewing audience everything they want to hear to earn their respect. I just don't know what the dignity respect task exchange entails. With me, you do not have to earn my respect. I hope to show the utmost respect to every living being. Sure, you can earn my disrespect by systematically uh, removing the dignity of others by showing a lack of respect for people's ability to think for themselves instead of telling them what you think they want to hear, which has been quantitatively reinforced by higher ratings. But you really have to earn my disrespect. I give out respect willy-nilly. Everybody gets some. You get respect, and you get respect. And acceptance and understanding of others all starts with respect. Okay, maybe love, then respect. But until we all learn to give our respect unconditionally to all our fellow beings, and to instead have people earn disrespect, instead of disrespect being our default, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism what are you ethically consuming under capitalism and originally i thought that said ethnically and i had no idea why you were asking that question but you'll hear my response later on as well our replies get right on air during the third hour of this week's show this week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show flint taylor's the torture machine racism and Pol police violence in chicago again the question from L is what are you ethically consuming under capitalism 
Leave your response now on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the way we understand po- poverty defines our politics. The problem is we don't understand poverty. Michigan is the new front lines in the fight against tar sand tar sand pipelines. The U.S. Christian far right that's connected to President Trump is funding the rise of Europe's far right. There's a new feminist manifesto for the 99% and it's very anti-capitalist. A past guest is out of prison and under house arrest and he'll get us caught up on what's happening in Turkey. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, producing this week... Alex Jerry, Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Poverty is an ideology, and the way we view poverty has a huge impact on our worldview. The problem is, measurements of poverty that are supposedly objective are actually very political. Here to explain how we need to understand poverty better Social Policy and Development Studies scholar Andrew Martin Fisher is author of Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing Social Justice from Global Development. Welcome to This is Hell, Andrew. Hi. Well, thank you. I, I hate to ask a question that's in the title of your book. I always have to uh, qu- qualify this because I always hate doing it. But just so we can get people to understand, what do you mean by poverty being an ideology? Uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, the what, what I mean by poverty as ideology is very much focused on the concept of poverty in terms of how we understand it and the fact that it's um, because there's obviously the social experience of poverty that people experience that's not an ideology, that's a, a social reality, and that's what we're fundamentally concerned by. But it's the way we conceive it and measure it and apply it to policy becomes very ideological in terms of um, uh, how it's used as a uh, a tool or a means of social identification that's then tied to policy making and provisioning of benefits and goods and so on, uh, and and that's very much oriented towards how people think the world and society should be ordered. So it's 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 intricately interwoven with that broader understanding of social ordering that that uh, makes it, I think, such a um, uh, a potent social science concept, much more than other social science concepts. Um, and, and also this tension, as I point out in one of the chapters in the book, uh, it, this tension between identification and segregation. That, you know, ideally under an ideal world, a poverty measurement would just be informing our policy making to see if some policies are helping the poor or helping reduce poverty and so on. But invariably, it gets tied into policy making in, in ways that are often uh, reinforcing what in social policy we call targeting, uh, which is very much about segregating poor people from the rest of society. But you also talk about how we don't really have a very good sense of what poverty is because of measurements made by organizations like the World Bank that may be misleading. They try to say that they're objective, that they're depoliticized measurements, but you say how these uh, are misleading. So if we don't understand 
really what the state of poverty is today, then does that lead also to a confused politics about poverty? Yeah, I think uh, definitely the the. I mean, the issue with I think the issue with the World Bank uh, uh, poverty statistics, sort of like called the one dollar or whatever a day poverty line, uh, is that we don't really know what it refers to in terms of actually reflecting uh, real social basic social needs of poor people in the world, and in particular how those change over time. So it creates a narrative of of of, of continuous progress, especially since 1980. Uh, and some of that is real. We can't deny it. Although the real part is probably driven uh, mostly by poverty reduction in China, but a huge amount of it, we we don't know what's real and what's not real. Um, and I mean, it's not to deny that there's been increasing consumption across the world since 1980, but um, the, the the measures are often also. I, I think the, the the standard is set so low, and they're not adjusted to changing circumstances over time that basically the the poverty line becomes increasingly obsolete over time so the you know the measures that the world bank produces of falling poverty could be as much a reflection of uh, the fact that poor people have a tiny bit more to consume <laughs> or it could be a reflection of the fact that the poverty line hasn't been adjusted properly over time and is actually just uh, um uh, um you know, becoming increasingly obsolete to reflect the actual social needs of, of poor people across the world. But then what they do is they take that those measures of falling poverty into a narrative of how neoliberal globalization, for lack of a better term, <laughs> since 1980, uh, has been, uh, you know, effectively, perhaps not perfect, but uh, in somewhat emancipatory in terms of, as they like to say, pulling people out of poverty, um, <clears throat> when when a lot of what may be happening is just uh, well, uh, an increasingly obsolete poverty line that's not properly adjusted to to the real needs of people in 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 this type of circumstance. So this is where the poverty measurement becomes extremely political, and it becomes extremely how it's used by you know the famous examples like in January, Bill Gates uh, tweeted how wonderful the world is because because of all these improvements in poverty since uh, over the last 200 years. But you know the and that became a huge focus of debate um, and. You know, the question is, is how is he using this information, this data that is largely relying on World Bank data uh, um, and certain historical extrapolations from historians and so on to go before 1980? But but how is he using this information uh, to then justify the type of world where he, he benefits from, he profits from, right? Um, it's like saying, you know, it's, it's fine, the world's fine that I'm, you know, a multi-billionaire. Uh, and 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 basically getting rich off monopolistic rent seeking, uh, because ultimately people are better off through the process, right? Um, and so that's how the, the use of these statistics becomes extremely um, sensitive. Last month we were in the middle of that conversation. Actually, we spoke with anthropologist at the London School of Economics, Jason Hickel, author of last year's mm-hmm. The Divide: A uh, Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions. Jason had returned to our show to discuss his Guardian article and the fallout from that article. Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing. He couldn't be more wrong. After the article was published, Jason's work uh, had been criticized by pop science author Steven Pinker, who argues everything is always getting better. So why change a thing? So where does poverty stand today? What is neoliberalism's record on addressing global poverty, or do we really have no idea? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, in Jason, I think you know, I I I, I sympathize with Jason's um, uh, argument. So I think I think he pushed it a bit too far in the sense that he was denying the whole 200 years of poverty reduction, arguing that that actually what it reflects is a proletarianization of of the world's sort of uh, workforce over the last 200 years under colonialism and then post-colonialism and neoliberalism and so on. Uh, whereas I think obviously we have to be careful in the sense that we do have to recognize over the last 200 years or 100 years or even 50 years that there have been major, major improvements in, in standards of living and it's especially things like um, dimensions in health and education. Uh, I mean, because of the other, one of my areas of specialties in demography. And if we look at demography, um, um, you know, we see these dramatic reductions in mortality across the world in poor and rich societies, which is undeniable. It's it's, it's not something that we can... Uh, and a lot of that is what these graphics by Max Roser and company uh, and then used by Bill Gates was referring to. They were referring to reductions in mortality, reductions in um, increases in, in school enrollments, or reductions in literacy, and, and these types of human development dimensions can't be denied, right? There's been massive transformations in world populations all over the world. Um, uh, so, so to die, and even in terms of income poverty, I don't think you know global capitalism is as 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 um, uh, as messed up as it, it might be is extremely uh, what it is. You know, in like classical Marxist terms, it's this revolutionizing of the forces of production, this constantly increasing productivity, where we're producing more and more stuff, you know, uh, than we've ever produced before in, in the history of the planet. Uh, even in the context of rising population. So in that sense, yes, in pure consumption, very basic consumption terms, the world has changed and the world, you know, we're no, no longer uh, living in sort of the state of scarcity that we we, we, we might have 100 or 200 years ago. And I think a lot of a lot of the sort of the material measurements of poverty are, are reflecting that, right? Um, so I think he went a bit too far in terms of denying that uh, to, as as a means to 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 um, uh, argue with uh, you, you know Bill Gates in that sense. What I would say is you know the more important question is more approximately what's been happening since 1980 because um, you know the historical measure and also because you know you can turn to these reductions in mortality fine so but we we know that mortality has, has fallen dramatically since even the 1950s in poor countries um but uh so what what is that telling us right is it telling us that necessarily a neoliberal was this achieved by a neoliberal model of uh, of of uh, of basically you know free market enterprise of people like bill gates being able to do, you know uh to 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 evade taxes and so on whereas not you know arguably not the 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 um um you know arguably it's been basically uh these have been the outputs of largely public investments in in health uh uh in the post war period and major innovation you know major advances in in um in the public provisioning of health and 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 also public health practices and so on it hasn't been driven by the private sector and so on and if anything a lot of the uh neoliberal policies from the from the eighties onwards have 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 caused some of these mortality reductions to stall, at least in the, the very austere periods of uh, debt crisis and so on. Um, so, is this? Are we using this? Are these using the stats to legitimize the world of Bill Gates that he would like to see, or are we legitimizing actually um, 
uh, do these statistics legitimize uh, universalistic types of uh, public health policies or single-payer single in the U.S. or equivalent types of policies in, in developing countries where universal health care doesn't exist? So for me, that's the more important debate to be having. It's, it's not necessarily whether we can deny that poverty reduction hasn't taken place over the last 200 years. Um, the other debate, of course, is what exactly has happened since the 1980s because a huge amount of the poverty, uh, poverty adjust, uh, reduction that has happened is is has happened um, uh, in China, right? And of course, there's debates about what exactly has happened in China. Again, there it becomes ideological because then a lot of people will hold up China and say, "Well, this is again an example of how neoliberalism and basically liberalization of markets is, has this incredible poverty redu- reducing potential." But what really has driven poverty reduction in China is, you know, arguably not that it's. Uh, a variety of other things. It's, uh, again, a lot of public interventions in education and health, a lot of redistributive policies, uh, um, uh, and a lot of classic sort of capitalist dynamics, uh, but that are rooted on strong state guiding industrial policy and, and so on, rather than this neoliberal model of just freeing up everything and letting the private sector run amok, right? So um, it, it's, 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 the poverty statistics are, are, are used as of these weapons and the, the politics of representation of what exactly has been happening. Um, I mean, if you want to give me another example, uh, uh, for me to give another example, I mean, uh, the one I always like is in, in Latin America, for instance, which went into a deep, deep, deep economic crisis in the beginning of the 80s. Um, and so you had continuous poverty reduction up to, according to, if we accept the conventional measures, again, this is questionable, but if we accept the conventional measures, you had poverty reduction up to the late 70s, then it fell into a deep, deep crisis, which was uh, very austere. That was sort of the beginning of neoliberal economic policies of austerity and adjustments and so on, followed by structural adjustment programs, which uh, neoliberal structural adjustment programs of privatization, deregulation, liberalization, and so on. You know, the continent went into the famous, you know, one lost decade in Africa was two lost decades, uh, and and poverty then reached a peak of uh, you know it increased over that period, uh, and it pretty much reached its its peak in 1990, uh, and then ironically the Millennium Development Goals and a lot of these poverty uh, statistics uh, um, start in 1990, right? So the Millennium Development Goals essentially chose as their starting point uh, to measure achievements in achieving the Millennium Development Goals the sort of the worst possible point of economic crisis that you could you, you, you could pick from which, you know, economies naturally will tend to recover, right? So it's sort of like taking Greece in the pits of the of the debt crisis in 2012, 13, 14, when, you know, a huge increase in poverty. And then just stabilizing from that situation, you would see a decline in poverty. But then saying that that's the, that's the, that's the effect of neoliberal policies is ridiculous, right? It's, it's if anything that high point of poverty was created by the neoliberal policies, and then as soon as you have some relaxation of the extreme austerity, you have some improvement, and then you have poverty reduction, right? So the World Bank uh, would like to say, well, you know, we've seen this continuous poverty reduction since 1990, but the reality is that a good part of that, up until the mid 2000s, maybe 2010, depending on the country you're looking at, is just merely recovery from the lost decades of neoliberal austerity and so on. Um, so, you know, these are the types of issues I discuss in the book in, in any case. But. Are, are there metrics we should avoid 
uh, using or giving any respect to? And are there alternate metrics that we can and should use to better understand neoliberalism's and globalization's impact on global poverty? And if there are these alternate metrics, why aren't they being used? Well, I, I, I think they're... Well, I mean, first of all, yeah. I mean, if you if you had if I had to just off the top of my head give you a metric that I think is not a very useful one, it's like a proxy means testing is a very popular method right now. And 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 the argument there is that instead of trying to measure income and ex- and expenditure, we choose these proxies that uh, will will have some statistical association with predicting poverty or predicting consumption levels. And then, and that are easy for surveyors to observe, like how many light bulbs do you have in your house, or if you have a TV, or, or, or do you have uh, a mobile phone, or things like that. And so they use these proxy measures as a, as a quick and easy way of evaluating whether a household is poor or not poor. Uh, they've been very much pushed by the World Bank for many years, and they're quite popular in a lot of these um, <clears throat> poverty reduction programs across the you know uh, developing countries. Um, and uh, they've been shown to be extremely inaccurate. So you have a huge amount of, uh, in terms of trying to identify who the poor people are or aren't, they're, 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 you have human, what we call exclusion errors and inclusion errors. So uh, basically, um, so extremely faulty. And, and also, they're, they're problematic in many, many ways. And I discussed that in the book at several points. And I think what's so interesting about it, especially for an American audience, is that, uh, you know, the Trump administration, uh, I think it was just um, uh, last year, he, 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 he or, I mean, not he, Trump, I mean, whoever he is, or what he thinks, or the people around him, uh, changed the, um, uh, the poverty measure from, at least they, you know, they, they were adopted a poverty measure uh, using more, from a more conventional income-based uh, uh, approach to a proxy means testing approach, and in the process reduced the measurement of poverty in the U.S. from 18.5 million people living in extreme poverty to about 250,000. And then Trump, you know, proudly declared that poverty had basically been eliminated from the U.S., you know, just simply by um, adopting this new measure, right? And I think it's this, it's this, these types of measures are so problematic because they can be so arbitrary in terms of what variables you include, what variables you don't include. So you include a variable that's basically universal to even the poorest people in society, and then you find yourself basically eliminating poverty just through statistical manipulation, right? So these these are these types of measures I think are, are very problematic. Um, and they also there's also types of measures that are very difficult for poor people to actually negotiate how they're being measured, right? So I think I think that what's really crucial, and this partly goes to answering your second question, I think what's really crucial when we consider measurement is what is the purpose of measurement? If, if the purpose of measurement is to, well, you know, provide social goods and so on to people in in a, in an egalitarian, non-discriminatory way, <clears throat> but also to build up state capacity in these issues and also strengthen forms of accountability where people can hold states accountable to <clears throat> claim their you know benefits, entitlements, and so on. And you introduce these types of poverty measurements that are increasingly, you know, they're very refined econometric measures, even if they're very inaccurate, they're very sophisticated in terms of econometric techniques. Uh, but they basically make it impossible for the average person to understand what the hell is going on. Um, so, you know, they become almost, you, you undermine any minimal capability of them being able to 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 sort of build up mechanisms of accountability in terms of how they are being identified 
uh, and hence the, the benefits and entitlements or, uh, that, that they can claim, right? So I think this is really problematic. In terms of stats that I would would argue that need to be reinforced, I mean, I'm, I'm not against classical poverty measurement. I just think we have to be extremely aware of these types of issues and how, well, arbitrary uh, or value-laden are the judgments we make in terms of the criteria that we include in poverty lines in particular. I think poverty lines are especially problematic because all social science, also social science statistics have these problems. They're all political. They're all sort of institutionally mediated. But I think the problem with a lot of um, <clears> them, <throat> the, the, the problem with poverty statistics in particular is that they use the threshold. You know, so the threshold, you could say it's for evaluative purposes because you need to say who's poor and who's not poor. But ultimately, it gets brought back to uh, as uh, in terms of practice identification, right? Where for actual policy making and distribution of you know goods and benefits and so on. So that's what makes poverty measurement so tricky and also so arbitrary and so susceptible to political judgment, value judgments, and so on. <clears throat> Whereas my preference, of course, is is, uh, is reinforcing the the conventional. <clears throat> disaggregated measures of trying to understand what the actual needs are in the population. So, and from the point of view of health services, <clears throat> we already have a whole battery of statistics of things we need to, to look at to understand the health of a population, right? And this is what somebody working in the health sector needs to know. They don't need to know that 32% of the population is poor or not poor. They need to know what are the, you know, what are the you know, what's the, the morbidity and the more, you know, mortality rates, what's the burden of disease across the population, across different social classes and so on. We have these statistics, right? And they exist, but I, I think often what happens also, and this is how the measurement of poverty now, you know, not, we're not talking about a hundred years ago, but now becomes very politicized because of often efforts to undermine these conventional existing uh, uh, social scientific um, uh, methods of understanding what's happening with society and the economy and replacing them with these, you know, high, highly econometric types of techniques that are often very inaccurate and in doing the same thing or 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 also um, uh, often confuse a lot of the issues as well. So, um, you know, and, and so I think these basic practices of social statistics is extremely important for for state capacity, for um, for the state being able to service its population and understand what's um, what are the needs in the population, uh, <clears throat> but I don't think poverty measurements are necessarily the most effective for doing that. And you write um, that the, the the apparent apolitical framing and universalist appeal of these agendas hides this fact, while the stifling of political debate through the uh, performance of consensus and global development agendas has arguably lent the upper hand to the institutionally and politically more powerful voices within these agendas. How effective are these metrics at stifling debate on poverty? Well, uh, I mean, the the... Yeah, I think the, especially when you look at the Millennium Development Goals or, uh, well, the previous Millennium Development Goals or now the Sustainable Development Goals, there's this idea that just by goal setting, we, we you know, it, it, that in itself will become a motivation for people to, for governments to, uh, you know, focus on the poor and so on. I mean, it's, the question is, is that, is, is it really doing that? But, but in the process, I mean, if you look at these goals, they've, most of the metrics of poverty they've adopted are, are what we would call absolute measures of poverty, which 
which arguably I, I, I would say don't aren't very effective in really tracking what these evolving social needs are in these, you know, rapidly transforming societies that we're looking at today, uh, especially as populations urbanize and so on. But but also what it does is it depoliticizes the, the debate over policy, right? And that's really the more crucial question. Uh, because I mean I always like the example of not exactly poverty but inequality, which is related uh, in 2012, when there was the UN was trying to revive uh, attention to uh, inequality, and this was before people like Piketty uh, wrote his, you know, published his book in English, and it became a, you know, uh, uh, you know, really popular for a while. Um, and the Economist magazine, of course, was sort of a neoliberal voice piece, very intelligent, but you know, it pretty much translates everything into a neoliberal view of the world. Uh, either they came out with a special issue on inequality, and they said. Like, we agree, inequality is possibly a problem. You know, uh, we, we're we're fine with that. Yes, it's reached high levels. We should do something about it. <clears throat> so, what should we do? Well, what we should do is um, uh, get rid of the teachers union in the U.S. <laughs> they said they said the biggest obstacle. This is I love this quote. I, I don't know if I have it perfectly quoted here, but they said the biggest obstacle to social mobility in the U.S are not the bankers in New York, they are the teachers union, you know, because it, according to their vision, it was it was, it was the, the unions obstructing labor markets and obstructing incentives in the education system that were making a dysfunctional education system, which then leads to um, uh, poorly performing, you know, a, 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 an education system that's not servicing poor people. And then you have, that's the basis of inequality and, and, and so on and so on, right? So they, they, you know, they attacked state-owned enterprises in China and Russia, and they said these have to be reformed. These are the big obstacles. This is what's driving inequality. So, you know, we can all agree that inequality or poverty is a problem, but it doesn't solve the policy debates, right? So we're back, basically, back down to, to zero again, and we're still talking about the neoliberal policy program of, of you know, radical deregulation and 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 attacks on labor unions and so on. I mean, the irony is that labor unions are already so weak in the U.S. and yet they chose to pick on labor unions as the major cause of of, of inequality in the U.S. So so this, well, the you know the problem I think with the goal the the, the these types of goal setting exercises at the global level is that it doesn't they don't in order to create a consensus. Um, in these agendas, they can't address these issues because if they do address these issues, they would be basically knocked off the table by the U.S. and a variety of other countries who, you know, would not want any mention of this. So basically, typically in these international negotiations, they water down the agreement, the consensus to its most minimal points that everyone agree, can agree on because they don't really say anything, right? So yes, we reduce poverty. Well, one person thinks you need to reduce poverty by liberalizing markets. The other one thinks you need to, live, you know, reduce poverty by... Uh, you know, regulating markets and so on. So uh, you haven't really solved anything in the process. And but what tends to happen, of course, is in these in these forums, the yeah, as I as I as I, as you as you cited, the powerful actors dominate the scene and dominate the the translation of these goals then into policy programs, right? So um, you know, the, you know, the World Bank in that sense has been very much behind the these goal setting exercises because they take the goals and they say, okay, well now let's achieve them. So what do we do? Well, we keep pushing ahead with our preferred 
you know, policy menu, basically, in these countries. And you write of these, the measurements and the institutions that support them, that they can be appropriately described as depoliticizing projects, as you were saying, purportedly setting ethical guidelines that transcend the deadlock of endless ideological disputes that have rocked development since the early 1980s. However, they have not actually been explicit about any particular policy agenda due to necessity, of course, because then no consensus would ever be reached. Why exactly. would being explicit about their policy agenda necessarily end the chance of any consensus? Uh, <clears throat> well, because there is no agreement on policy agendas. I, I, I mean, I think that's very clear, uh, you know, um, especially in terms of, uh, you know, basically basically the power factors. Would, if you would bring in anything that would be more redistributive, would be more... Um, advocating for especially i mean here we're talking you know in terms of poor countries in terms of bringing in capital controls for instance um in terms uh so that you're not having the free free flow of finance uh, across borders requiring countries to impose ridiculously high interest rates uh just to be able to attract capital and avoid their currencies plunging and 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 then trade agreements that don't allow them to do uh, industrial policy or other forms of government intervention into production and so on, which many would see as very important to development, you know, as development strategies, and which successful developing countries have used in the past. Although, if you would bring that onto the agenda and 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 try and say, okay, well, these are things we need to consider, uh, basically, the World Bank and the U.S. And, and and so on would veto them. They would there would not be an agreement. Uh, they would just basically say no. I mean. You need to cut that out, right? So it, it, it's it's these types of dynamics that are continuously happening at the international level. That um, <clears throat> that uh, you know, it's the power politics in these negotiations. Whenever you have at the UN uh, or or another forum, basically, um, where basically the countries are extremely restricted in terms of the policy choices they can make, and and people would argue that. <clears throat> I mean, if you look at successful countries that have had very rapid reductions of poverty, uh, for better or for worse. I mean, you know, the, the policies they've used, basically, there's not many countries in the world that have had very rapid, you know, sustained reductions of poverty. Um, you know, we're looking at China, the East Asian countries, and, and, and um, uh, uh, you know, where there's, it's undeniable in a sense. Uh, maybe India to, to a certain degree. Um and but especially in the East Asian case or in the Chinese case, uh, you're talking about a very interventionist state. Um, they revised the major redistributive policies uh, in in the two thousand uh, the nineteen nineties. Um, uh, they have very strong industrial policy. Uh, they have very strong state ownership in the economy. Um, uh, they have a lot of problems. I mean, they basically their whole social policy system more or less fell apart, at least in terms of universal provisioning in the early 80s, and they've since been trying to reconstruct that. Uh, and this is where we could question a lot of the poverty statistics in China. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but the point is, is that the types of policies they've adopted are would, for, for most developing countries that don't have their power and clout um, would simply be not allowed, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, in terms of these international treaties and negotiations and so on, right? Right. Um, or the countries might might try and practice them for a certain period of time, but as soon as they enter into a 
balance payment crisis, they go back to the IMF. The first thing the IMF does is say, um, you know, you know, we'll give you support conditional on you maintaining uh, capital account liberalization or, or other types of policies, right? So. We have been speaking with social policy and development studies scholar Andrew Martin Fisher. He is author of Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing Social Justice from Global Development. Andrew won the 2015 International Studies in Poverty Prize awarded by the Comparative Research Program on Poverty. He's also the author of 2014's The Disempowered Development of Tibet and China, a study in the economics of marginalization. One last question for you, Andrew, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You write, it is in this sense that we might even suggest that a sufficient level of economic security is required for markets to function in the ways they are conventionally postulated in neoclassical economic theory. In other words, liberalism arguably needs socialism in order to be actualized. Is liberalism then not at odds with socialism as liberals may think it is? Is socialism necessary for liberalism to survive? And if so... What is the impact on liberalism if Democrats who are not socialists continue attacking socialism? Yeah, it's so interesting that you picked out that part. I mean, I like that point, but uh, the you know, in essence, it's it's more of it's more of a, a critique of the theoretical argument behind liberalism because liberalism itself is is you know, it's a deductive theory. It's not it's a theory that's built on first principles and, and not on reality, right? Uh, but the first principle of, say, if you look at neoclassical economics, the whole notion of supply and demand only works insofar as people can not choose not to buy, right, or choose not to engage in the market. And that's the only way that the bargaining process can take place. So if you have labor who's through poverty just forced to engage, forced to work at whatever the wages, you know, um, I mean, this is where, for instance, in poor countries, the notion of unemployment is is, is actually a silly measure, because um, because most poor people have to work, you know, and the problem is not that they don't have work. The problem is that work is poorly paid. Uh, and and they're, but they're in a situation where they have to, through survival, they have to work. And in those conditions, the whole idea, sort of the neoclassical idea of, of uh, labor markets, supply and demand in, in labor markets, is, it just falls apart, right? Um, the only way you can actually have uh, a world that functions according to that type of view is if you have people having sufficient social economic security uh, where they don't need to actually uh, seek employment if the if the terms are not good, right? Uh, the only people who can actually do that are the relatively wealthy, right? Um, I mean, the U.S., for instance, the need to have health insurance, the need to, you know, just afford your mobile phone in your car, I mean, forces, you know, probably is what drives high employment rates and things like that. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the question then is whether, uh, so, so socialism in that sense of how do we create a situation where the whole population, not just the rich people in the population can have sufficient degree of social economic security, whereby they have that type of freedom. Um, I mean, this was basically the, I mean, you know, Mar- Marx in that sense was inspired by the so-called Scottish enlightenment, uh, referring to Smith, um, in the sense that, you know, his ultimate notion of communism in that sense was also uh, probably in his, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't want to speak for him or, or represent Marxist scholarship, but it would be that idea of 
the, the the everyone in the population having that type of freedom that's derived from the, the the amount of wealth we're generating in our societies through a highly productive society. I mean, if you look at the amount of wealth that exists in the American economy, if it was equitably distributed, um, you know, I think a recent study I I saw said that that said that workers in the U.S. would be earning as would be having salary increases uh, in tune with what um, CEOs have been receiving. Um, sort of top managers of large corporations and the minimum wage right now in the U.S. would be $33. So what would the U.S. look like if you would have a minimum wage of $33 and uh, what types of, how would the labor market function in that sense, right? And what types of freedoms would people then have? What type of society could we have, right? And I guess the question is, that is that socialism? Do we need socialism for, to achieve that? Um, because I think there's a lot of rhetoric and you know, the words being tossed around right now, but it's just to, to pose that question, right? It's, it's actually in the, the abstract, deductive, neoclassical world that a lot of this economic policy is, is designed from or informed by. To function the way, theoretically, it is said to function would require perhaps that type of world, right? Otherwise, we need a different type of economic analysis that recognizes that basically the bulk of the population, even in rich countries like the U.S., are driven by compulsion. They're not driven by incentives, right? They're driven by the need to work and the need to survive and not by choices they're taking between consumption and leisure or as if they're rich people or something. Andrew, this is a fascinating book. Again, the title is Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing Social Justice from Global Development. Our guest this morning has been Andrew Martin Fisher. Andrew, I really appreciate you being on our show and the best of luck with your book, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Manufacturing Dissent since 1996. This is Hell, Michigan, is on the front lines in the battle against tar sands pipelines, a battle that has been raging since Standing Rock two winters ago and before. We'll find out about the new ways Michiganders are obstructing the exploitation of global warming, causing fossil fuels. In a moment, when we talk to Duncan Tar and Noor Us-Sabah, who co-wrote the Commune magazine article, The End of the Line, the rusting fossil fuel infrastructure of the upper Midwest connects the poisoned residents of Flint to the wreckage of Alberta's oil sands. Can it also become the backbone for a new movement against planet-killing capitalism? You can find that article at communemag.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, Gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history in the year 1296, 723 years ago. The English King Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks, because he was six feet two, had already conquered Wales and was intent on subjugating Scotland, because like all English kings, hell, like all kings, old Langshanks was a tool. Edward led 5,000 cavalry and 12,000 infantry to the most important Scottish trading port, Berwick-upon-Tweed. It was Good Friday, and over the next two days, Edward's men raged through the town, slaughtering all the people they could find, because what better way to mourn the death of Jesus Christ than slaughtering as many people as you can find? According to one account, the carnage sent blood flowing through the streets with so much force that the water wheels to power the town's grain mills began turning. Who knew human blood could be an alternate fuel? Sources differ on the number of dead, but it appears that between seven and 15,000 men, women, and children were massacred. Berwick's days as a merchant center came to an end. Edward converted the town into an English military base 
and the massacre helped ignite the first war of Scottish independence. 600 years later, residents of Berwick still claim that if you dug two feet straight down with a shovel anywhere in town, you would strike human bones, which is creepy. But have you ever dug down two feet where you live? I know I did as a kid and found old bottles and newspapers. But hell, if I'm going to do that in Chicago, I don't even want to consider what's buried under our front lawn. Now, now I'm going to lose sleep freaking out about it. What's under my lawn? What's under my lawn? Damn it, Ronaldo. Why are you making me paranoid about what's under my lawn? In Rotten History, 1855, 164 years ago, in the newly created U.S. territory of Kansas, violent mobs from the neighboring state of Missouri forced the election of a pro-slavery territorial legislature. The so-called Border Ruffians, which is a far cooler name than what they really were, hate-filled racist white supremacists who didn't recognize anyone but white people as human, they had overrun Kansas for months, ever since the U.S. Congress had passed an act creating the territories of Nebraska and Kansas and allowing each territory's legislature to rule independently on the slavery question. Because six years before the Civil War, the Union was so anti-slavery, they left the decision on slavery up to the states. Public sentiment in Kansas mostly ran against slavery, but those dicks from the slave state of Missouri were intent on subverting the popular will, because that's another thing about white supremacists. They hate democracy. They not only hate black people, anybody who's not white, they hate democracy. In the episode that came to be known as Bleeding Kansas, those racist pricks intimidated uh, local voters by murder and arson, and on election day, they fraudulently cast illegal votes and shut down polling places. The violence continued to escalate after the election, and it became one of the most important precursors to the American Civil War. Well, today's first piece of rotten history got me angry at Ronaldo for making me consider what the hell's under my lawn. I just want to say thanks, Ronaldo, for yet again giving me the opportunity to remind everyone, not only are white supremacist dicks, they have a long history of being total jagoffs. Finally, in rotten history, 1981, 38 years ago, in what he later said was an attempt to become famous enough to impress the film actress Jodie Foster, whom he had been stalking for several years, John Hinckley waited outside a Washington hotel for President Ronald Reagan to emerge from a speaking engagement compared to today, when all it takes to impress Jodie Foster is the script for Contact 2. That is, as long as her pal Mel Gibson has a role in it. When Reagan appeared with an entourage heading toward a waiting limousine, Hinckley, who was a lousy shot, opened fire with a revolver, wounding Reagan, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy, D.C. police officer Thomas Delahanty, and White House Press Secretary James Brady. Reagan later recovered, as did McCarthy, who today is chief of police in the Chicago suburb of Orland Park. Brady and Delahanty were left permanently disabled. Hinckley was, not, was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and the court decision spurred several states to revise or eliminate their insanity defense because... It's completely sane to try and impress Jodie Foster by killing Reagan? Uh. During his psychiatric confinement, Hinckley continued writing letters to Jodie Foster and also wrote to the imprisoned murderers Charles Manson and Ted Bundy. I mean, come on, what the hell is she going to do in prison? But in 2016, after being judged no longer dangerous, he was released and allowed to live on his own under certain restrictions. However, those restrictions are becoming less and less restrictive, as in November, Judge Paul Freeman ruled... Hinckley could move out of his mother's house in Virginia and live on his own upon location approval from the doctors. When you think of cruel and unusual punishment, having to live with your 93-year-old mom is just about as cruel and unusual as it gets. This week's question from hell is, what are you ethically 
consuming under capitalism? What are you ethically consuming under capitalism, if that's possible? Our reply is read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Michigan is the new front line in the fight against tar sands pipelines. The U.S. Christian far right that's connected to President Trump is funding the rise of Europe's far right. There's a new feminist manifesto for the 99%. A past guest is out of prison in Turkey, and now he's under house arrest and we'll get caught up with him on what's happening there before tomorrow's presidential election. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing this This Is Hell and some for supporting This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and then clicking on support and what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I am oddly proud to say that my home state, the place of my birth, Michigan, has become the front lines in a revolutionary way to confront and stop tar sands pipelines and the exacerbation of global warming. Here to tell us what's happening in Michigan's fight against climate change... Duncan Tarr and Noor Usabah co-wrote the Commune magazine article, The End of the Line. The rusting fossil fuel infrastructure of the upper Midwest connects the poison residents of Flint to the wreckage of Alberta's oil, si- oil sands. Can it also become the backbone for a new movement against planet-killing capitalism, which you can find at communemag.com. First you, Duncan. Welcome to This Is Hell. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Noor, welcome to This Is Hell. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I like that response. Uh, Noor is from Detroit, Michigan, which is where I was born. And uh, Duncan is from Lansing, Michigan, where I lived for five really shoddy years of my life. Uh, so, Duncan, let's start with you. You write that mapping the flow of oil helps make the climate crisis more legible and helps us prepare for the conflicts to come. How are we better prepared for the conflicts that come by mapping oil pipelines? How does knowing where oil pipelines are help fight global warming? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's in the article that we start with oil pipelines and the sort of like literally where they are in in Michigan. Um, and they're marked by these little flags in the ground that says there's a pipeline here. And they're marked every hundred miles with like a, a pump station. Um and we think this is useful because it like makes it like I, maybe this is an aspect of like pipelines that people that maybe is talked about less often um, of their facilitating the flow of this planet killing fossil fuel right and that they spill and all this but even this 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 is everyday struggle that property owners and people that live nearby and people live downstream um, have to deal with uh, the uh, the company perpetually harassing them coming into construction these sort of things but uh, like above and beyond that I think what why it's useful for us and why we wanted to write the article that we think that like um, capitalism consists of these flows. That's sort of one of the theses we have in the article. And people can, I think, understand the flow of oil through a pipe. And maybe from there, you can better understand um, how commodities flow through um, the 
state of Michigan, but also around the world. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, Noor, you write the devastation wrought by a fisher in an oil pipeline is not an airy hypothetical for rural Michiganders. In 2010, a different Enbridge pipeline, these pipelines are put down by the company Enbridge, uh, line 6B ruptured and spilled 1 million gallons of corrosive tar sands oil into the Kalamazoo River in southeast Michigan. So our listeners understand the level of this kind of threat. How does it being tar sands oil have any greater effect on the ability to clean up after a spill? Yeah, so something we wrote about in the article was that uh, conventional oil sources are dwindling. You know, those easy-to-extract drilling sources are now being replaced with harder-to-extract and refine oil sources. Um, Canada's biggest oil source right now is tar sands, which they basically squeeze oil out of sand. When before in conventional oil sources, you would drill into the sand and find a pocket of oil and get the juice out like that. Now they're squeezing oil out of sand. And that is not only uh, extra difficult to extract and refine, it also uh, is a heavier crude oil, higher, higher bitumen levels. So that going through certain types of pipelines, pipelines that aren't built to hold that type of oil is corrosive. And also when those pipelines rupture, like they did, the largest inland oil spill in American history was in the Kalamazoo River, um, a very, a very uh, beautiful wetland and habitat. Um, it has more devastating effects on the habitat there and the area there than normal oil spills that, unfortunately, we are desensitized to accept happening regularly in this country. Noor, let me just follow up on that real quick, because you also write that uh, it is tar sands oil that flows through Enbridge's Line 6B, tar sands oils that destroyed the Kalamazoo River, just so people have a visceral understanding, have an image in their mind of how badly the Kalamazoo River has been destroyed. How is the Kalamazoo river destroyed by tar sands yeah um it's hard to measure how what what restoration even looks like in that sense because when it comes to these types of oil fields the state of michigan you know they go to the company that did it and says okay clean up you you did this and now you have to clean it up and it's not really so it's like we're trusting the oil companies themselves to tell us if it's fixed when the people themselves who are living around these areas are suffering from medical issues, the water sources have been polluted, and the habitats are being restored by the companies that are more skilled in pumping and drilling and transporting the oil rather than the actual ecological restoration aspect. Um, it is hard to tell the vast uh, impact of this spill on on the the habitats and the the animals there themselves, but yeah, um, yeah go ahead. Uh, just just to add to that too, I mean, it's when we're talking about the river, we're talking about like the little river and the oil. That one thing in particular about tar sands oil is that it like sinks to the bottom of the riverbed, um, so it's exceptionally difficult to clean up. But we're also not just talking about the river and the riverbed and the habitat. We're talking about the people that literally died that were living along the edge of the river. Um, and in this sort of classic scenario, those with more money could, uh, you know, 
relocate more easily. But uh, in particular, there was a like a trailer park right along the Kalamazoo River, right near where the spill actually happened. And a bunch of those people in the in the years that and immediately after the spill got all sorts of cancers and other diseases. That it's it's like it's hard to link directly to the spill. But we're talking about the Kalamazoo River being destroyed. Like we're talking about also people that got really sick, and we're talking about lives that were destroyed, and not not just like a river abstract from people or other animals. Well, Duncan, uh, how how much say did the people who ended up being the neighbors of this pipeline, how much say did they have in the placement of the pipeline? You also, both of you write about uh, the impact on Native American tribes, on indigenous people's areas, because they often go through indigenous uh, land. So um, how much of a say did the people who are not indigenous, how much say did they have in the placement of the pipeline when they ended up being the neighbors of the pipeline, Duncan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's, when we, when we talk about the first question had to do with making these flows like more legible, um, making the, the climate crisis more legible. Um, and in a sense like this, this, these things are like hidden processes that people don't have really a say over. People don't like people like people actually fight to have the pipeline, like not go through their land or not go through a certain wetland or not go through their, um, through their reservation. Um, and, and oftentimes those spots are lost because the company has, like many, like not only millions of dollars on its side, and and professional lawyers, and but also the police and the state, and and eminent domain, and these sorts of things. Where so as far as as far as people having some sort of say over where the pipeline is built, I don't think, I don't think that's really on the table. At all. People people fight it actually quite actively, and they lose, or they actually don't even know, and they buy property, and there's a pipeline running through the stream in their backyard or through their farmland. Um, and that that's also the other side of this of, of this it's, it's sort of hidden it's like it's it's literally underground so when we're talking about mapping it we're talking about making it like kind of like like yeah making it more legible making it visible making something that's hidden something that people can actually see and think about newer you and duncan also cite a study by oil change international stating canada can't increase tar sands production or build more pipelines if the world is to achieve the targets on global carbon emissions set by the paris agreement on climate can tar sands canada's tar sands production all by itself undo the Paris Climate cons- uh, Accord? And if so, Noor, what does that either say about the accord when only one nation's production of fossil fuel uh, can undermine it? Or for that matter, what does that say reveal about Canada's production? Is this a matter of massive production or weak accords? <sighs> That's tough. There's competing issues here. There is people who are interested in uh uh, accommodating these accords, but obviously, like we said in this article, that's not possible if they want to increase their production. Um, but what we're hearing more so, in without even talking about the accords, is that it's a it's a it's an issue of like national security and national economic security. So Canada, most of the discussion is about how Canada's oil oil um, industry is suffering because of these anti pipeline campaigns. And that there's a bottleneck of oil being shipped out of Canada into other places like or being transferred to the Gulf for refining. So people are talking less about whether we should increase or decrease oil sands production, tar sands production in Canada and more about how do we solve these bottlenecks of the Canadian oil industry that is suffering. Enbridge is suffering. How can we save them, basically, is what we're hearing more so. And it's not even... 
I would say that it's not even just about the the tar sand oil that's in the Athabasca oil sands of Canada, but also similarly crude oil in the back end oil formation in North Dakota. The same oil that is taking through Keystone Pipeline, through the Dakota Access Pipeline, through the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. Like these are both crude oil pipelines or crude oil formations that are being extracted from. And while the discussion is on the economic security of the energy, the oil industry in Canada, it's also, it should be connected to the effects of the crude oil in the U.S. as well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, this is one of the things I was, one of the things that really was freaking me out about this, Duncan, is that how you write without uh, a break from capital, if it's not a wasteland in Athabasca up in northern Canada, it's a wasteland somewhere else in the Congo, perhaps, or in Chile or central China, where the minerals necessary for renewable energy are mined. Even those reforms which would aim to abolish fossil fuels entirely won't stop capitalism from creating new sacrifice zones, areas of the planet rendered largely uninhabitable. So, Duncan, is is the problem that the public is simply not aware enough of these sacrifice zones, that we, we don't see the damage that is wrought by climate change? I mean, could we take, like, like those pictures of diseased lungs on cigarette packs or even those written Surgeon General's warnings? Should we have pictures at gas pumps and docking stations of the devastation caused by drilling uh, for oil or mining for lithium? And do you think that would have any impact? Do, do, do you think it's just a matter of people being better informed about the sacrifice zones and that would change our understanding of global warming? Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a funny proposal. I think um, it would it would be an interesting social experiment, but I don't think fundamentally that is the sort of um, like revolutionary change needed to adequately address address right. these ideas. And and, and I think um, I think when we talk about specifically these other types of sacrifice zones, so we spent like the beginning we've been talking about the Athabasca oil sands, but if we're talking about these other sacrifice zones, like the proposal from from many other people on the left, it's like we're going to actually hold on to capitalism, hold on dear tight, and we're going to just replace our current energy infrastructure based on fossil fuels with, uh, you know, with solar panels and other sorts of renewable energies. And I think one of the things we want to get at in the article is that if we don't break with the actual, the logic of growth and the logic of endless growth and the logic of capital, and we just, and we just simply substitute renewables, so-called renewables, then we're, like all we're doing is displacing the sort of uh, where the sacrifice zones actually are. Because the, the process to actually create solar panels and to, to mine all these metals to build windmills, these are actually also really devastating to local um, habitats. So, I mean, I, I think I think that's like that's an important, and I think that's a critique we offer in the article of even proposals like the Green New Deal, which has a lot of momentum right now. Um, I don't think that we accept that that that's gonna like that's gonna keep so many of the destructive process, destructive processes that currently operate in our world and keep them the same. So. Yeah. 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 Let me yeah, just. I agree with that because I, I think that it's interesting to think that for these different types of environmental issues and human rights issues and environmental justice issues, people are talking and focusing on different problems with it. So when we're talking about uh, these oil pipelines and energy sources as being devastating to the environment, there is a focus on the environmental issues and not as much of a focus on the, the impact on human. On, in, on you know, in disadvantaged communities and the human issues in regards to that. So when we're talking about increasing solar panels and increasing wind turbines and those types of 
renewable energy sources is that the focus is just going to be on how that's environmentally more sound when that's not talking about the fact that these a lot of these minerals are sourced from very messed up areas like where there's conflict mineral and human rights abuses to get these minerals so is it so what so how do we balance all these interests so Noor, though uh, how can we get to what you to call the radical and necessary goals of abolishing the fossil fuel industry in consultation with civic groups and business that could reach 100% of national national power generation from renewable sources by 2030, as the Green New Deal promises. How can we reach those goals without producing an alternative energy source that could lead to reindustrialization? How can we reach what you see as laudable goals of the Green New Deal without creating an alternative fuel as substitute for fossil fuels whose very production could lead to another industrial age? Yeah, I think the, the uh, I mean, that's a difficult question, right? I think, um, I think, I think it's important to, while we're talking about these issues, to make a more radical uh, discussion that talks about, you know, like Duncan was saying earlier, like a larger break from, the current paradigm and structure of capital. When we're talking about a Green New Deal, a, a way to like change, completely change the energy sources and how that would impact the industrial age, we have to also as equally and as fervently be talking about how we are going to stop recreating these sacrifice zones in other countries and how we're not going to be just solving American environmental issues by also sacrificing people in other areas' uh, livelihoods and right to autonomy and self-determination in their own communities. Duncan, you write that on the other side of the Detroit River, a leg of the Enbridge pipeline system called Line 9 has been disabled multiple times. For example, pump stations are located above ground along the route of the pipeline at regular intervals and can be disabled by simply turning a wheel. This valve-turning tactic has since been repeated elsewhere as information about pipeline resistance gets disseminated. Duncan, how, how long do the pipelines remain disabled in this valve-turning tactic? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, the exact details are a little bit hard to discern, but, um, but basically they're, they're, they're apparently turned off until the company goes and turns it back on or the police or, or, or something like that. Um, Oftentimes, if, if some of these like, protests, people announce their intention ahead of time, and I think in that case, sometimes the uh, the pipeline operator like turns off the flow uh, like preemptively to prevent any sort of disruption, um, or like yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's it's kind of hard to tell, but it's, it, I mean, it's, I think if you turn it off, then it's off until it's turned back on. So that's usually it ends up being a couple of hours until. The company can get down there and turn it back on. So, Noor, is this kind of disabling illegal? Are people being arrested for this disabling? Or is it really easy to get away with? <laughs> Absolutely. People are getting arrested for this. But it depends. So if you're trying to focus on extending the amount of time it stays off, a lot of people we've seen have been, you know, chaining themselves to these pump stations, more of a blockade before people can come and turn it off longer. And that, and that is them putting their lives on the line to to definitely get arrested and to deal with the repercussions of trespassing or um, uh, paying a restitution to the companies for basically causing them financial loss. But it's also 
you know, depending on the security of different types of pub stations, I mean, I would say you could go do it in the middle of the night, turn it off, and run away and maybe not be seen. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, oh, well, yeah. uh, Noor, let me ask you, though. So this is a combination of valve turning and barricades. Are these strategies that are new in Michigan that are being applied elsewhere? Are they strategies that were taken from other protests like Standing Rock? Uh, where did the strategy come from? Is this brand new in Michigan? Um, this, this strategy that we're talking about mostly has been done on the other side of the river in Canada um, with with people in Ontario um, doing this tactic. But I would say when we're doing a lot of research on environmental tactics in general in regards to blockading and um, uh, has has been a lot more influenced by things happening in um, more of like the sit-ins and stuff like that happening in around the civil rights era. Like those tactics have been adapted to environmental tactics and more broadly towards indigenous rights tactics. And I think that we're kind of building off of this history of resistance. And these tactics aren't necessarily new. They're just being adapted to certain movements. So, Duncan, the next uh, stage in this, and it's, I think it's already underway, is going to be Line 5. Line 5 by Enbridge is going to be this tar sands pipeline that goes through the Mackinac Straits, the Mackinac Straits that uh, link Lake Michigan to Lake Huron and the uh, largest area of fresh water anywhere in the world. How dangerous is it that Enbridge is building this pipeline? What could happen to the uh, Michigan's and the world's fresh water supply if there's a spill? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think it would be absolutely devastating, and and this is sort of sort of like widespread consensus among like the broad range of the political spectrum in Michigan um, that this is this would be devastating. So like the the right wing business owners up there also are like against this pipeline. Um, and just a small point, it's actually not a tar sands pipeline, but it is crude oil, um, and liquid natural gas, um. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think. Uh, but this 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 thing, this is what I guess. What our article is also kind of doing is is responding to the, this sort of like the the some of the the political maneuvering happening in Michigan about this. So now, line five is actually the the, the governor, who's a Democrat, who just won. Um, this is something that she ran on, Governor Whitmer. Um, she wanted to decommission line five, and that's great, and like that that would be that would make it a lot safer. But and actually, this is the, the, the fact of the matter is that if we, if we can't actually challenge not only Enbridge, the corporation, which is going to continue to try to ship oil, but also the, the, the logic, which we keep coming back to, that, that, that requires oil for perpetual growth. If we, if we don't actually challenge sort of the root cause, which we identify as capitalism mm-hmm. in the article, then, then they're just going to ship the oil some other way. Or they're going to, yeah, they're going to they're gonna ship it via truck or they're going to ship it via train. And the train's going to explode. I mean, there's like... You know, so it's great if, if the line five is if, if, if that's commissioned, which it actually might be, might be in the next few years if the governor keeps going the way she's going. Um, but it, it still it doesn't actually it just sort of like geographically shifts the problem. 
Uh, we have been speaking with Duncan Tarr and Noor Sabah. She, they co-wrote the Commune magazine article, The End of the Line, The Rusting Fossil Fuel Infrastructure of the Upper Midwest Connects the Poisoned Residents of Flint to the Wreckage of Alberta's Oil Sands. Can it also become the backbone for a new movement against planet-killing capitalism? You can find that article at communemag.com. We have our final question uh, that we do with all of our guests is called The Question from Hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I have one for each of you. Let's start with you, Noor. Can we save the planet and save capitalism? And what happens if we try to do both? Can we save capitalism? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, you know, I think capitalism, the beauty and terror of it is that it's constantly evolving. And it is a machine that will continue to turn unless we take it over and try to do something else with it. Just think smashing capitalism is too vague for my liking. I'd rather change the nature of it. All right, Duncan. To- oh, sorry, uh, uh, Duncan, to you. Um, so you point out how the United States' biggest trading partner is Canada. All this trade goes through Michigan, goes through Detroit. Detroit, uh, where I was born, where I lived for a while. Um, is getting better, but it's an economically devastated city. Michigan is not in a very good financial situation. What does it say about the way that our economy works, the capitalism works, when the biggest trading partner sends all of their trade or most of their trade through Michigan, yet Michigan is still financially devastated? Yeah, I I mean, I, I think that speaks exactly to the problem that we're describing, which is that we live in a, in a in an economic system um, in which the 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 benefits and the profits of the economy are going to the to a small number of people and a small number of corporations, and they go and it's going in huge numbers. So it it makes total sense that I mean Michigan is is becoming this like shipping corridor that isn't actually benefiting people in Detroit, most people in Detroit, and it's not benefiting people in Flint. It's not benefiting people that live along Line Five. It's benefiting a few corporations that are redeveloping Detroit, that are operating the oil pipelines, that are building bridges. And so, I mean, I think it speaks, you're describing actually the, the problem of capitalism. And I think that's, that's exactly what we want to get at when we think through in our article. Duncan and Noor, I really appreciate you guys being on the show today. Uh, both of you, I appreciate. I'm sorry for saying guys. Uh, the uh, They are co-authors <laughs> of the Commune Magazine article, The End of the Line, the rusting fossil fuel infrastructure of the upper Midwest connects the poisoned residents of Flint to the wreckage of Alberta's oil sands. You can find out more at communemag.com. Uh, let's see, just wanted to uh, point out one other thing here. Oh, Duncan is a writer and organizer and is involved with that organization, Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity. And you can find out more about that organization by going to michiganabolition.org. Thank you both so much for being on the show. This is a fantastic article, and we just skimmed the surface of it. There is so much more in this. So all of the people who are listening, we have tons of listeners who are always very excited about our uh, conversations on climate change. Anybody who's listening who's who's interested in climate change and how to combat it, you must read their article at communemag.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Oh, we have very little time here, so we're probably not going to get to listener feedback until later. The U.S. Christian far right is behind the funding of Europe's rising far right and they're expanding white supremacy. Organizations like Billy Graham's are giving fascist money so they can 
run for the European Parliament. So, of course, Europe is outraged while the U.S. media completely ignores the scandal. We'll find out exactly what's happening when we hear from Open Democracy co-editor Adam Ramsey, who is going to be substituting for Claire Provost. He'll be discussing the article that Open Democracy put out this week, revealed Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe. All right, let me put the listener feedback over here so we can do this a little bit later. This week's question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. And for every Chicagoan out there who is going to be voting for a mayor, and I believe that's this Tuesday, you have to hear the question from hell that I asked Flint Taylor, his response, and my follow-up. Flint talks about deposing Lori Lightfoot in a police violence hearing and what happened in that hearing. And it is fascinating. I'm not saying that uh, Flint or I support one candidate or the other, but it's definitely something that you need to know before you go vote next Tuesday. Again, the question from Al is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And listen during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell to see if you've won. Coming up on this week's show, the U.S. Christian far right that's connected to President Trump is funding the rise of Europe's far right. There's a new feminist manifesto for the 99%. A past guest is out of prison and under house arrest, and he'll get us all caught up on what's happening in Turkey, where he is under house arrest. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. We also might get to listener feedback. Let me put that over there. What Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show and for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when you click on support. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. U.S. Christian far-right groups that have been linked to President Trump and his administration are funding the rise of white supremacy in the far-right in Europe, leading up to European parliamentary elections in May. Here to tell us why Europe is incredibly angry in the, about the interference in European elections and to help us try to figure out why it's not a bigger story here in the United States, Open Democracy co-editor, Adam Ramsey is on to discuss the OpenDemocracy.net article revealed Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe, boosting the far right, which was written by past This Is Hell guest Clara Provost and Mary Fitzgerald. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adam. Hello. Thank you for having me. 
having me. You can find the article at opendemocracy.net. Your article includes a map showing cash flows from right-wing organizations into Europe to fund the far right. These groups include the Billy Graham Evangelistic Organization or Association and Focus on the Family. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website states, Evangelist Billy Graham took Christ literally when he... Uh, when Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Adam, is the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association preaching the gospel in Europe, or are they funding hate? I think that they're preaching a very specific version of the gospel, one not accepted by many people, and one which you know, encourages people absolutely to uh, be Islamophobic. Um, the last time they organized events in the UK, for example, they um, were criticized widely by the Muslim community here because they, because uh, Franklin Graham, who now runs it, has um, described Islam as a, a religion of Satan, I think. Um, they've certainly proposed views about homosexuality and LGBT people, which amount essentially to hate. And um, and so absolutely, you know, when they are funding projects across Europe promoting their, you know, particularly extreme version of Christianity, then you know people get very worried. So so Franklin Graham is now running it. Billy Graham has passed away, but Billy Graham was a spiritual advisor to and provided uh, spiritual counsel for every president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. The Denver Post reported that on June 23, 2017, Vice President uh, Mike Pence attended the Focus on the Family's 40th anniversary celebration, and he commended the organization for all that work. What does it say to you about the United States when two of the 12 organizations that have sent a combined $51 million in support of far-right groups to Europe have, have such close ties to mainstream U.S. politicians. What does it say to you when an evangelical organization whose leader advised 12 presidents is funding far-right hate groups in a group staunchly supported by the current president doing the same? I think that watching American politics from across the Atlantic, it's not surprising for us that uh, what you call mainstream politics is often seen as really quite far-right by us. The idea that you know, um, the Billy Graham Evangelist Association, whose director, I've got the quote in front of me, has described Islam as an evil and very wicked religion um, and who, you know, has battled against human rights for LGBT people. The idea that, you know, this is mainstream politics is considered as kind of absurd in the rest of the Western world. And we've always treated this, you know, in Britain, we've always seen America as being an oddity in the idea that, you know, these, these views are treated as normal or mainstream. And what's worrying is that, you know, these ideas are now being exported along with a lot of cash out to Europe to try and um, try and spread, you know, those ideas here. And for us, that's, uh, that's very worrying. Especially in light of the fact in May there are going to be European parliamentary elections. There are 750 uh, members of the European Parliament. Did your findings reveal that these funds from the U.S. to European far-right groups are targeting this May's European parliamentary election? Because what what could happen if this funding was effective and it led to a huge increase in the number of far-right groups represented in European Parliament? So I think it's important to be careful. The, the research we did was going through what's called 990 filings for these groups in the States and looking at their declarations of spending in Europe. 
And the latest one drops 2017, so we don't know about money coming into Europe now. But what we do know is that if you go across Europe, so for example, I went to Croatia from the UK, got the train to Croatia last year. And in Croatia, I found on the streets of Zagreb, on every street corner, there were activists campaigning against a treaty called the Istanbul Convention, which is a convention against violence on women. And they said they were doing this because they cared about trans rights. And they like to present as these sort of grassroots movements. And what we've discovered in this research is that those activists are in fact being organized by groups who get funding from America. So these aren't sort of grassroots organizations that just emerge from the population. These are issues which have been kind of, you know, shipped in and people have been organized around these bigotries from outside and by, you know, essentially very wealthy people. And what that does is create a political space for far-right political parties to step into. So what we're seeing is absolutely a kind of an attempt to push this sort of politics into Europe through these civil society groups. And that absolutely will create, is creating space that far-right parties are hoping to step into in order to spread their ideas. And, you know, I am worried about European elections. As you say, you know, the idea that far-right parties could get control of the European Parliament, which is what they're aiming to do, is deeply concerning. Of course, it's not inevitable. And I think there's also a good chance that lots and lots of young people show up in these European elections for the first time and vote for progressive parties in order to stop that happening. But we do need to be concerned that, you know, this politics has been promoted. It sells itself as grassroots. It sells itself as kind of emerging from the people. But what our research shows is that in reality, this is a politics that is being funded by usually multimillionaires and imported into Europe from outside. It's not a kind of natural organic process. It's the propaganda of the rich. This weekend, there is a summit of the World Congress of Families in Verona, Italy. Uh, how has Europe's far right reacted to your investigation? After all, the far right is about stopping foreignness in all its forms. So how do they rationalize taking U.S. money to their xenophobic supporters? So the, um, the five of the groups we looked at are members of the World Congress on Families, and lots of them have other links to it. So it's the kind of hub of all these groups. And we've also published a piece on open democracy this week showing that lots of politicians, particularly from far-right parties, are coming to this Congress and speaking at this Congress, and that there's a strong link between the World Congress on Families and a lot of these far-right parties. And so they're absolutely happy to work internationally. They don't see it as a problem to, you know, collaborate when it's, you know, with rich people and in their interests, and with particularly rich white people and in their interests. Of course, they do object to what they call multiculturalism, and what, which essentially is code for people of colour. But, you know, they're very happy to ally with essentially rich white Americans in order to protect their worldview. So how much was this funding an open secret, a secret in plain view? What we did, so we, we took public documents. We went through the, as I say, the 990 filings of all these organizations, all the sort of main Christian conservative groups in the States. And these are very long documents. And journalists have gone through them before, but no one's ever looked at this particular section, Section F, which is, as you can imagine, right, you know, because Danny Alphabet, the long way through, and, and looked at funding of these groups, particularly, you know, how American groups are funding activities in the rest of the world. And one of the many things that surprised us when we did that, and it was the first time anyone's done it, was that historically American groups have famously funded activities in Latin America, and I'm sure we can think about you know, examples of ways that American right-wing organizations have influenced Latin American politics over the years. But in fact, the 
place that most of the money was going to now is Europe. So it's now the case that the American Christian right is spending more money in Europe than any other region of the world. And that's a huge change. And as you say, this was information that was in plain sight. We didn't need to, you know, go undercover or anything to reveal it. We, we went through lots of documents, but no one has done that before because people haven't really examined, you know, how these organizations are being funded. And you know, the reason we did that, as I say, is that there are all these groups emerging that proclaim to be grassroots, but they seem to have lots of money and they seem to have often the same slogans. And so the question was always, well, where's this money coming from? Who's organizing these people? Why are they suddenly talking about trans rights in Croatia and, you know, being transphobic in Croatia and this wasn't an issue here before? And it turns out that's because, you know, this, this is politics that's being brought in by very rich people from abroad. You write that our investigation reveals that some of these groups have sent teams of lobbyists to Brussels to influence EU officials, challenged laws against discrimination and hate speech in European courts, as you were saying earlier, supported campaigns against LGBT rights in the Czech Republic and Romania, funded a network of grassroots anti-abortion campaigns in Italy and Spain. So do you have any sense of how dependent these right-wing groups in Europe are on this funding? Because there's a a gentleman, I think his name is Timothy Gill, uh, he wrote an article at uh, the Washington Post, and he was talking about how the opposition in Venezuela seems to have been completely and secretly funded by the United States as well. And so to what degree they're dependent upon that money, I'm not too sure, and, and I'm not too sure even how much the opposition actually knew they were being funded. So how dependent are right-wing groups in Europe? Do you have any sense of how dependent right-wing groups in Europe are on this funding? I think that it's a combination of things. So absolutely, the funding, you know, $50 million is a lot of money in European politics. Um, we don't have the same sort of, you know, big box elections and big box campaign groups that you get in the States. So, so you know, that, that's going to make a big difference. And it's one of the things. It's not the only thing. And of course, these groups also have their own supporters in Europe and can raise their own funds in Europe. But it's also, you know, about teaching people techniques, it's about moral support, it's about encouragement, it's about sharing best practice. So it's about sort of um, how they collaborate together. And I think that you know, some of it's the funding, but a lot of it is also about you know, other ways of working together and, and supporting. And I think absolutely American money and American you know, broader moral support and political support has been really important in creating this sort of backlash in Europe against feminism and against LGBT rights and against sort of basic you know, equalities. And you know, absolutely, like it, the reason we started looking at it is that it didn't add up how much these groups were able to organise and the size of these NGOs and you know the kind of emergence of these organisations based on the size of the bases they could reach when they started. They sort of, you know, a lot of these groups seem to sort of suddenly spring up. And so you know, the fact that it turns out that a lot of their funding is coming from the state explains that. So yes, American money isn't the only thing, but it certainly is important. Uh, let's see. I don't want to ask that question. Uh, so... Is the Christian far right on a global mission to spread white supremacy? Because you're right, it's not just European politicians who are concerned about the U.S. Christian far right groups funding uh, Europe's far right. These groups are controversial in America, too. The WCF, for instance, itself has been described as an anti-LGBT hate group. So is the U.S. Christian far right on a global mission to spread white supremacy? And if so, how does the Billy Graham Evangelistic uh, Association believe that funding white supremacy is bringing and preaching the gospel to every creature. 
I think we need to be careful. Um, some of these groups, while they're sexist and homophobic, aren't necessarily particularly racist. And I wouldn't want to make the claim that they are. Some of them um, absolutely are racist and, you know, will say racist things. And, and we need to be careful about distinguishing those two groups from each other. There are, you know, churches with you know, significant black membership, for example, that also can be homophobic or sexist. You know, those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But what is the case is that, you know, as I was saying before, the European far-right parties, which are white supremacists, benefit from uh, a process where kind of pro-family, as they call it, issues become major issues in elections. So if you go around saying that, you know, everyone should vote for the most anti-abortion candidate, and the most anti-abortion candidate is the far-right, which it always is, then you find, you'll find that lots of people will vote for a far-right party, even if you didn't, you know, you yourself aren't racist. You're still encouraging people to vote for a far-right party. So I don't think we should say that all, all these organisations that we investigated are necessarily white supremacists, but it absolutely is the case that the process that they're taking part in is encouraging white supremacist parties in Europe. And it absolutely is the case that many of these groups see Christianity as a sort of white European and North American phenomenon that sort of is opposed to Islam, and that essentially is code for opposed to people of colour. And so a lot of what these people believe, a lot of, you know, what a lot of them believe, not all of them, is absolutely ultimately a form of white supremacy, and we should stand against that. But we also need to be careful because, you know, for example, the World Congress and Families has black people at it. It's not an entirely white organization. So these things are complicated. But but yes, there is a strong link between white supremacy and that particular form of Christianity, which sees Christendom as a kind of white space that needs to be protected from, you know, Islamic marauders and migrants and so on. You write two of the Trump-linked American groups examined by Open Democracy are Christian right legal powerhouses, Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF, and the American Center for Law and Justice. Together, they have spent more than $20 million in Europe since 2008. How are these groups linked to President Trump? So the clearest one is um, the ACLJ, the American Center for Law and Justice. They're Chief lawyer, their chief counsel is um, Jay Sekulow, who's also, you know, been described as um, Donald Trump's chief legal counsel in the Mueller inquiry and as the face of Donald Trump's legal team. So they just, you know, literally, their head lawyer is also Trump's head lawyer. It's a very simple relationship. And in fact, his son um, Jordan Sekulow is the director of the organisation. So you know, that's a very straight line, you know, linked to the Trump White House. Um, ADF is more complicated, but it's certainly the case that. You know, a lot of what they do aligns very closely with Trump. And then the Action Institute, there's another group we looked at, um, worked very closely with Steve Bannon, who, of course, was Donald Trump's campaign manager and um, chief strategist for a while. So a number of these groups have various links to Donald Trump. And, you know, the more you look into this, the more you discover that it's often the personnel are the same as the Trump campaigns and often, you know, the staff have, have jumped between the two and so on. So there's certainly a strong link with a lot between you know, a lot of these groups and the sort of um, the Tea Party movement, and then eventually Trump. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, let's see. Uh, what is the end goal of the far right in Europe? What happens if the far right rises and takes power in Europe? How does that help 
whatever agenda the U.S. Christian far right has? I think that the, I mean, a lot of what the far right in Europe wants to do is about stopping migration um, and about, you know, they, they talk about ending multiculturalism, which, you know, probably means a kind of desire to send uh, people you know, back, as they would say, to the countries that, as they put it, they came from. Or, of course, often we're talking third or fourth generation migrants or more, um, which, of course, would require enormous amounts of violence to you know, remove people from their homes and their communities. Um, they also are very keen to push women back into their homes and, you know, kind of divide gender, you know, down strict lines again. And, and they want to roll back a lot of the advances in human rights you've seen in the last generation. So. They talk about, you know, getting rid of equal marriage, gay marriage. They talk about, um, you know, getting rid of abortion rights. And there's very strong moves to you know, get rid of abortion rights in a lot of European countries now, which is stuff that was resolved 40 years ago in Europe. It's not like America, where it's been a contentious issue. You know, until, until recently, everyone basically thought that, you know, abortion should be available. And there was no, you know, major debate about it in most European countries until, you know, until the last couple of years. Um, and... Ultimately, what are they trying to do? Well, the way I see it is that, you know, these are groups who are often funded by supremely wealthy billionaires who like to flit around offshore and don't pay very much tax and, um, and benefit enormously from the sort of offshore economy. And what they're trying to do is imprison the rest of us in borders, push women back into their homes and, you know, use that to stop us from regulating their offshore space and create this sort of division where... Sort of most people live, you know, imprisoned in borders and in our homes, while they get to kind of flit around offshore and not, you know, escape from the regulations that stop them from exploiting workers and make them pay taxes. One last question for you. We've been speaking with Adam Rainey. He is co-editor at Open Democracy UK. You can find out more about the organization by going to, about the media outlet, by going to opendemocracy.net. We've been discussing the article that was written by his colleagues. Claire Provost and Mary Fitzgerald revealed Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe, boosting the far right. Our final question for you is, as we do with all of our guests, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, considering the interference by these private U.S. organizations in the democratic process within Europe. How sympathetic are you for those here in the United States who fear Russian meddling in our elections? Well, so I think that people have sort of misunderstood the whole point of Russian interference. For me, it's really about what I would call disaster capitalists. Um, so, you know, what we see, and I, I spend a lot of time investigating the Brexit referendum and dark money funding of that, and we see the same phenomenon. But I think what's really going on is that we've seen the rise of a new oligarch class that, um, you know, extremely wealthy people who made a lot of money over the last 40 years. And one of the key ways they made money was asset stripping the Soviet Union in the 1990s and, and more recently. And so it is the case that there's lots of money sloshing around the world trying to shape politics. And as I say, trying to kind of imprison us all in borders while they flit around offshore. And it's absolutely the case that a lot of that money was made in Russia, sometimes by Russian people. One of the people who made a lot of money like that is Vladimir Putin. But it's also the case that there's lots of American billionaires, there's Saudi billionaires. There's billionaires from across the Gulf, in fact, and there's European billionaires. 
and that all these people together have, this, have created this kind of vortex of disaster capitalist offshore money that's sloshing around the world. And absolutely, in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, have tried to make the world anew and uh, kind of develop a new form of capitalism in which we're controlled by surveillance and borders and in which they can store their money offshore and make a lot of it. And so it's true that Russia is a kind of key node in that world. It's true that because, you know, the asset stripping of the Soviet Union at the end of the 20th century was a key process in creating that oligarch class, that there's a lot of that money coming from Russia. But I think that describing it as a kind of Kremlin interference is quite a Cold War framing. And I think it's been a mistake of the American left and the Democrats to focus on that rather than explaining how basically Trump is a member of a global oligarch class, he's a member of the global elite, and he's trying to, you know, basically discipline the rest of us in order to make sure they can get away with all their crimes. Adam, if I could, for the next two hours, all we would do is be playing that response to the question from hell over and over again so it would finally kind of sink in here in the United States. So I really appreciate you being on in the show this week. Thank you very much for uh, filling in for Claire. That's Adam Ramsey, co-editor at Open Democracy UK. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam Ramsey. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Um, We're gonna be able to tell you what's happening what happened with claire we'll tell you on the patreon podcast patreon.com slash this is hell we can't say anything about it right now but we will and it's pretty cool there is a new feminist manifesto and this time feminism is going all in on anti-capitalism as neoliberalism has destroyed the liberal center This promises to make the new wave of feminism we are already experiencing to be more intersectional, even universal, benefiting everyone. Everyone! We'll learn about the new feminism when we talk to writer and philosopher Cinzia Aruza, co-author of Feminism for the 99% of Manifesto. Cinzia wrote the manifesto with past This Is Hell guest Tithi Bhattacharya and with hopefully upcoming This Is Hell guest Nancy Fraser. Alex, what have you been up to on social media this week? Uh, I think that Nancy Fraser thing is going to work, too. Sweet! Uh, well, uh, not ch- until her book comes out in May, correct? Yeah, a- April? April. I think it's April. April actually, late April, April yeah. uh, early May. So uh, that's actually a big book she did with Bhaskar Sankara, who is a past and maybe future guest too. Uh, Chuck sent me a link to an article called "We Can't Trust the Permafrost Anymore: Doomsday Vault at Risk in Norway." By the way, the Doomsday Vault looks really cool. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, but my favorite, uh, first of all, anymore. I think that thing was built like ten years ago, which is very funny. Uh, and continuing on how funny this story is, uh, the subhead of the article, we can't trust the permafrost anymore. Doomsday vault at risk in Norway was just the words, not good in quotes, <laughs> which is very funny. Uh, good, good job, whoever wrote that. Um, also, I shared uh, a great Maximilian Alvarez piece for Boston Review called The End of the End of History, um, sort of dissecting where we're at post Francis Fukuyama. And also uh, people on Facebook really liked an article I uh, shared by Shireen Al-Aldemi uh, in, in these times called As Yemen as War on Yemen Hits the Four-Year Mark, Here's a Brief History of U.S. Involvement. And actually, if you want to go back, this is hell. We did a, uh, oh, sorry, it's Leo sneezing in the, or blowing his nose <laughs> in the background. Uh, if you, you uh, want to go back, uh, Andrew Coburn in 
Oh, geez, was this 2016? December 2016. Got into yeah. sort of Obama's uh, war in Yemen, and that's like really great background reading too, or, or listening to. Um, and then also, finally, after getting four hours of sleep at night for the entire week, I tweeted, pretty cool that the only leftist unity project will be mass graves. <laughs> nice. uh, to which uh, John wrote, uh, you doing okay? <laughs> John? No. <laughs> it's time for something that I told you we would do last week. I haven't been teasing it today. It's time for our second installment in what Beto O'Rourke was posting as Psychedelic Warlord at the Cult of the Dead Cow Hacker Group website back in the late 20th century. This week's entry from Beto Psychedelic Warlord O'Rourke is called, oh, and this music's perfect for it, The Song of the Cow, a poem. I need a butt shine right now. You are holy, O sacred cow. I thirst for you. Provide milk. Buff my balls. Love the cow. Good fortune for those that do love me. Breathe my feet. The cow has arisen. Wax my ass. Scrub my balls. The cow has risen. Provide milk. O milky wonder. Sing for us once more. Live your life. Everlasting joy. Thrust your hooves up my analytic passage. Enjoy my fruits, provider of cheese and other wonderful dairy products. We will cleanse your inner intestines. We will bathe in your pungent odor. Gather cotton. Count my eyes. Smell my skin. Love the scarecrow and the milkman. I live only for eternity. Thirst for the undrinkable. Hold the heat. Praise the doughboy at the pizza shop. Love the oxen dung. Join us next time when we do a live show when we will continue reading Beto's insanity until he either quits running for president or all our listeners realize Beto O'Rourke is a jackass. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 195 respondents so far, we have the highest possible rating, 5 out of 5 stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. You, too, can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us 5 stars so I don't have to. And if you do, I'm telling you, I'll read your comment on the air. This week's question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? All replies read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. And you really should go to thisishell.com and listen to that interview, especially if you're a voter here in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism, as if that's possible? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to hear all the responses and find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, there's a new man, uh, feminist manifesto for the 99%. A past guest is out of prison in Turkey and under house arrest, and he'll tell us what's happening in the run-up to tomorrow's presidential election there. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. We might get to listener feedback, 
but we'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. Uh, we want to thank some people for sharing this is hell, and we want to thank some others for supporting this is hell when they go to this is hell.com and click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. There's a new feminist manifesto, and this time it's for the 99%. It's anti-capitalist, and it's intersectional with every other cause, from racism to global warming, everything in between, above, and beyond. Here to guide us through the new manifesto, we are very, very, very fortunate to have on our show writer and philosopher Cinzia Aruza, co-author of Feminism for the 99% of Manifesto. Cinzia wrote the manifesto with past This Is Hell guest Titi Bhattacharya and with upcoming This Is Hell guest Nancy Frazier. Welcome to This Is Hell, Cinzia. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Cynthia is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research. You can follow Cynthia on Twitter at Cynthia Aruza. that's C-I-N-Z-I-A-A-R-R-U-Z-Z-A. So what happens to the idea of feminism in the U.S. when our media's focus on gender equality celebrates corporate feminism, like the corporate feminism that you point out of uh, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg in her book Lean In? Uh, what, what happens when our idea of feminism in the U.S. Uh, is so focused on gender equality celebrates corporate feminism while the same media ignores Massive marches for a society free of sexist oppression, exploitation, and violence. What happens when the media focuses on lean in and ignores all the huge wave of feminist protests that are happening here in the world today? Well, this is the question that motivated us to, one of the questions that motivated us to write this manifesto in the sense that, uh, in a sense, we want to rescue feminism from uh, what we call a liberal uh, or neoliberal appropriation of uh, feminist discourse. And uh, we have seen this uh, not only in the United States, this is a, a phenomenon that can be also observed in, uh, in a number of other uh, countries in Europe. Um, so basically, the, the, the kind of feminism that has become uh, uh, mainstream in the, last, uh, uh, in the last decades was a feminism focused on uh, breaking the glass ceiling for women. So a feminist, a feminist focused on uh, um, promoting women to successful positions, encouraging them to have as, as much success as men, like the Lenin um, book by Samber. Um, defending, yes, uh, rights, uh, uh, like the, the right of uh, bodily self-determination, so the right to abortion or reproductive justice and so on, but never going b- beyond uh, what we may call formal rights. Uh, now, what, what happened is that, uh, first of all, uh, feminism was then enlisted in uh, neoliberal projects. Um, so, in other words, uh, what we call progressive neoliberalism, and we can think about uh, Hillary Clinton here, for example, um, what we call uh, neoliberal, uh, progressive neoliberalism basically uh, puts forward a number of uh, policies uh, inspired to um, austerity, uh, cuts on uh, on uh, on welfare, uh, aggressive uh, foreign poli- politics, and so on, while couching itself in this uh, 
pink veneer, so in other words, uh, presenting themselves as uh, protectors of uh, women's rights or LGBT rights. Um, so what happens is that then the mass of women are left behind. And since here, especially, for example, in the United States, the mass of, of immigrant women uh, we, who have suffered from uh, um, politics, uh, uh, xenophobic politics and politics of uh, closed borders, uh, also under uh, progressive liberal uh, administrations. Uh, and I'm thinking about the mass of working class uh, women uh, who uh, were left behind, basically struggling just to, to manage to arrive at the end of the month to survive and pay the bills, while uh, other women could uh, um, finally break the, the glass ceiling. So we think this is not a feminism for everybody. This is a feminism for uh, um, a specific class. In other words, it's a, you know, it's a project uh, for uh, the for the for the elite, for uh, women of the elite who want to have a parity within their own uh, class, but this project doesn't have anything to offer uh, to the mass of uh, women. Why should feminism necessarily challenge capitalism? Why do you think feminism needs to be anti-capitalist? Well, so um, the analysis we articulate in the, in the manifesto has to do with the notion of social reproduction. Uh, and social reproduction uh, concerns all the labor, the activities that go into the reproduction of what Marx would call uh, labor power. So our capi- capacity to, to work, our capacity to sell our, <laughs> our uh, um, labor power within uh, the formal labor market. Uh, and what we think is that uh, um, what happens under capitalism is that uh, uh, social reproduction, so all this fear of reproduction life, not only in, in uh, biological terms, but also in social terms. So this includes education, the socialization of children, and the care for the all of the uh, of the of the working class. Uh, so all this fear is uh, um, subordinated to production for profit. Uh, in other words. Capitalism doesn't really care about people reproducing themselves or about people's lives. It cares about this insofar as it is functional to have available uh, workforce on the on the on the market. Um, so the, we identify in this subordination of social reproduction to production for profit um, the uh, root cause of uh, gender oppression under capitalism. Of course, this is not. Uh, a theory that applies to all historical epochs, and we are perfectly aware that uh, the oppression of women, of course, predates uh, the, the birth of capitalism. Uh, but what we what we think is that uh, uh, under capitalism, uh, women's oppression has, has taken a different form and has different causes compared to the past. So, in other words, it is in the uh, specific mechanism of uh, uh, mechanism of capitalist societies that we need to uh, identify the uh, causes of, uh, uh, of women's oppression, gender oppression in general today. So what we say is basically this. Um, I mean, we don't have any certainty that by getting rid of capitalism, we will also be free as women, as queer people, uh, as LGBT people, and so on. Um, but what we know is that if we do not get rid of capitalism, we certainly will not be free. So what, we, what will happen is simply that uh, just an elite of women, just an elite of uh, um, LGBT people will have access to uh, equal opportunities, to uh, emancipation, to, to empowerment and so on, while the large mass will be left behind. 
So what we say is basically uh, we need a feminist movement that, which is the feminist movement that, by the way, is happening today in uh, in the rest of the world, um, that uh, tackles not only sexism but the, the interconnection, the, the internal relation between sexism and capitalism, and between sexism, sexism, capitalism, and racism. And if we don't do this, uh, then we will not. Um, create the, the social and historical conditions for a true uh, universal liberation. You write how, uh, what makes the choice pressing for us now between uh, liberation or between subjugation is the absence of any viable middle way. We owe the dearth of alternatives to neoliberalism, that exceptionally predatory financialized form of capitalism that has held sway across the globe for the last 40 years. How does neoliberalism create the fork in the road to two separate paths where one leads to a scorched planet and the other leads to a dream world? How did neoliberalism eliminate the middle way and impose these two choices upon feminism? Because I thought neoliberalism was the middle way that we were all waiting for. Okay. Um, So, first of all, uh, we need to take into account uh, the problem fundamental problem that should shape uh, basically all of our uh, politics and political orientations, which is uh, the problem of climate change, uh, which is clearly uh, caused by capitalism and particularly in, uh, by capitalism in its uh, neoliberal uh, form. Um, so from this viewpoint, uh, in a sense, um, climate change uh, already eliminates middle ground. So in other words, we, we really are... Uh, at the decisive historical moment, and if we, if we do not do uh, something decisive about this, then uh, we will all be in serious trouble. But besides this, um, what we uh, say in the manifesto is that uh, if we look at the last uh, um, years in particular, um, we can see in a number of countries that the rise of uh, uh, um, extremely reactionary far-right um, so this is uh, true, for example, in Brazil, in Argentina, um, in uh, Italy, in Europe. Uh, we have in Europe, by the way, the problem of, uh, of the rise of, uh, um, of uh, xenophobic, racist, and misogynistic far-right in a number of countries, and clearly Trump in the United States. <laughs> so uh, now, uh, what, what we think is that uh, uh, the rise of the far-right is, in many cases, uh, the response to the deterioration of conditions of life uh, under uh, uh, neoliberal policies. And uh, uh, decades of neoliberalism, with the, you know, the mass privatizations, the destruction of welfare states, uh, the, atta- the continuous attack on uh, labor conditions, but also on labor rights, uh, which, have char- which have characterized basically uh, a number of, of uh, uh, capitalist countries. All of these uh, phenomena and the phenomena of debt uh, of the financial debt used as a weapon against any kind of redistributive uh, policy, policies, um, all of this uh, has prepared the ground for the rise of uh, uh, of this uh, new reactionary far right. So, on the one hand, we have the rise of the uh, of uh, of the right. On the other hand, we have uh, progressive neoliberalism. Um, Again, we should think about uh, you know the mainstream democratic party in the United States, uh, but also all, uh, various uh, um, center-left or democratic parties uh, around the world that basically again have uh, have been champions 
of neoliberal policies. They have uh, really deteriorated our conditions of life, while at the same time uh, couching themselves in this uh, uh, veneer of uh, pro progressism uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, individual rights or uh, women's rights and so on. So we are the force is basically uh, this one. Both of these political poles, the far right and progressive neoliberalism, are symptoms. Are let's say. Uh, internal to the neoliberal project, and they are enabling each other. So no, neither of them uh, present a real alternative. And the risk uh, uh, for feminism today is uh, to choose progressive neoliberalism as a way to save ourselves from this uh, vicious uh, uh, attack from the right. However, we think this is clearly not the alternative. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, we have the menu, which we uh, don't like. <laughs> and from which we don't want to choose. On the other hand, uh, there is another path, which is uh, uh, the path uh, that, that leads to um, contesting and to uh, attacking capitalism and capitalist society as a whole, uh, starting from the myriad of struggles that are already happening uh, in, in the world. And if we don't, do not do this, none of the problems that have been created by neoliberal and financialized capitalism today will be solved, because neither the far right nor the uh, 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 liberalism uh, present a viable alternative, a viable uh, uh, choice. Uh, so we need to really reject this menu and do something else, <laughs> so, and really rebuild uh, the ability of uh, international struggle against, uh, against capitalism, which is what the current Chinese wave is doing in a number of countries already. You and your colleagues, Titi Bhattacharya and Nancy Fraser, you write, liberal feminism met its Waterloo in the U.S. presidential election of 2016 when the much-ballyhooed candidacy of Hillary Clinton failed to excite women voters, and for good reason. Clinton personified the deepening disconnect between elite women's association to, or ascension to high office and improvements in the lives of the vast majority. Did Hillary Clinton's enormous success compare to the lack of success women were experiencing relatively under the neoliberal programs Clinton actually promoted, and her consistent insistence that America is always is already great, so it didn't need to become great again, did that lead feminists to question Hillary's feminism, or did it lead them to question corporate feminism in general? She was just the personification of it. Yeah, no, I, I do think that uh, Clinton was just a personification of corporate feminism. Uh, and uh, um, so the, the point is not so much to question whether she's a feminist or not. She's a feminist of a kind, and, and corporate feminists are a fe feminist of a kind. In, in other words, they do have feminist politics, but it's feminist politics for the women of their class, of their own class, which has little, very, very little to offer to the mass of, uh, of women. And what we thought is that uh, um, this kind of corporate uh, liberal feminism uh, there been, there has been a hegemonic in, in past decades. Um, actually, it was uh, um, I don't know if it is already in a crisis of legitimacy, but certainly had a very <laughs> mechanic past during the, the electoral campaign with the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Um, and you may remember that at the time of the primaries, uh, um, a lot, a number of liberal feminists uh, wrote articles uh, urging women to support uh, Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders, uh, 
uh, insisting that she that it, it would be anti-feminist to vote for Bernie for a man, a white man, Bernie Sanders, that uh, Hillary Clinton was a champion of women's rights, and, and so on and so on. Um, and all of these appeals, and also the you know the characterization of Sanders supporters as you know brochalists. Uh, or uh, the dismissal as sexist, I think show, uh, shows the um, profound uh, inability to understand that the kind of feminism uh, Hillary Clinton represented and embodied uh, had really nothing to offer, or very little to offer to the large mass of uh, women living in the United States. Um, and from, uh, from this viewpoint, uh, then uh, clearly, you know, supporting uh, social democratic policies that, that would, at, at the very least, uh, reconstruct uh, some uh, uh, material conditions that would uh, improve women's lives directly, you know, like free healthcare. Universal free healthcare would be certainly something that uh, uh, would enormously improve uh, women's lives. Uh, this is... This is uh, what the, you know. What liberal feminists didn't understand is that this option was clearly preferable for a mass of uh, for a mass of women. Why? Because it, it, it spoke to the uh, to the needs and uh, and demands and, and conditions of life and experience of uh, of a mass of uh, working unemployed precarious women. Now, with this, I don't mean to say that uh, um, you know that uh, um, there are, there were no issues during the. Uh, Sanders campaign, but what I mean to say is that there we we really uh, could uh, uh, see the beginning of, of a bifurcation, of, uh, political bifurcation among uh, the liberal appropriation of uh, feminism and feminist discourse and the return of a different kind of feminism, what we call in the manifesto class struggle feminism, so a feminism that uh, really has as its focus uh, uh, working class women and not the women on the top. So it is liberal, you, you write how liberal feminism is bankrupt, it's time to get over it. Is liberal feminism bankrupt, bankrupt because, in your opinion, all liberalism is bankrupt? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> in the sense that clearly, um, yeah, I would say yes. Clearly the, the, liber, the progressive liberal project is bankrupt. Again, this doesn't mean that it is not uh, it is not going to be appealing again and so on. But clearly, it is uh, um, it is uh, it has shown to be part of the problem and not a solution uh, a solution to the problem. And the bankruptcy of uh, liberal feminism could also be seen, in a sense, as uh, the bankruptcy of uh, a kind of trickle down logic applied to feminism. So the idea that uh, you know if we if we have more uh, uh, women CEO, uh, more successful uh, um, entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, and so on, this will, uh, uh, by default, improve also the uh, the conditions of women in general. So we have seen that this is not uh, the case, and uh, we have seen in uh, in these years also the promises of uh, liberalism uh, were not fulfilled. Um, you know, we are in a, in a situation of uh, in which the um, the top of societies uh, is making uh, uh, enormous amounts of profit, even during the crisis and in the years following the, the crisis. Uh, we, we are in a situation in which who paid the price of the crisis were working people, 
uh, so where the mass of people were not uh, those who had caused the crisis. And we are in a situation in which it is becoming increasingly clear that uh, uh, these uh, forms of societies to which progressive neoliberalism or liberalism has contributed are not sustainable. Uh, are not sustainable are, uh, uh, ecologically, and they are not sustainable in terms of uh, the quality of our life. Uh, the, 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 the condition in which we uh, in which we, we live, and this has not to do just with you know labor rights or workplaces and so on. It has to do with the, all the issues that has you know that, that involve social reproduction, healthcare, education, um, um, the care for uh, uh, for the elderly and the sick, uh, the the various public infrastructures that we need for our lives. So not by chance. One of the signs of this bankruptcy, of political bankruptcy, not by chance, is, for example, the the new strike wave in the United States. Uh, the new strike wave that is happening precisely within uh, in, in sectors connected to social reproduction. So the teacher strike on April second, we will have the nurses strike in New York. Uh, hospitality workers, the hotel workers, are also organizing, uh, increasingly organizing, uh, and. Uh, uh, unionizing and so on. So clearly we have a, pro- a, a process of uh, um, uh, growth or struggles uh, within the sphere of social reproduction, struggles uh, around healthcare, around education and so on that uh, uh, are showing precisely uh, what kind of uh, conditions uh, neoliberalism created for us and the unsustainability of these conditions. Uh, because these are strikes that question not only the, you know, contracts, wages, and so on, but also the quality of education or the quality of uh, health care that is provided. You write the conventional feminist responses to gender violence are understandable, but nonetheless inadequate. The most widespread response is the demand for criminalization and punishment. This carceral feminism takes for granted precisely what needs to be called into question, the mistaken assumption that the laws, police, and courts maintain sufficient autonomy from the capitalist power structure to counter its deep-seated tendency to generate gender violence. In fact, the criminal justice system disproportionately targets poor and working-class men of color, including migrants while leaving their white-collar professional counterparts free to rape and batter. Likewise, anti-trafficking campaigns and laws against sexual slavery are frequently used to deport migrant women while their rapists and profiteers remain at large. So to you, is carceral feminism feminism? And how bad is carceral feminism for feminism? So... Again, carceral feminism is feminist. We need to, you know, take into account feminism is not an homogeneous right. uh, field. Uh, we have seen about multiple kinds of feminism. And, uh, and, and, and clearly, you know, carceral feminism is a form of feminism. It's a form of which, with which we do not agree. Um, and the reason why uh, carceral feminism is very bad for feminism is that, uh, first of all, uh, it doesn't take into account a long history of uh, uh, political and juridical instrumentalization of uh, gender violence uh, for the uh, you know for the sake of, of uh, the repression and attacks against uh, racialized people. Um, you know, think about the the myth of the black rape in the United States. The second wave feminism uh, in the United States, white second wave, second wave feminism, for example, actually uh, even 
both into the in, in, in some forms into the myth of the of the black rapist and to the myth of that you know black men uh, are particularly attracted to reading white women and so on. Um, in Europe, uh, where I come from, um, gender violence, you know, cases of uh, or individual cases of rape uh, committed by immigrants, uh, immigrants are uh, routinely used um, as an excuse to criminalize uh, and deport uh, uh, immigrants in general. So uh, the first problem we have is that uh, we cannot be naive about uh, the racialized uh, uh, nature of uh, um, carceral solutions. And we uh, and uh, being uh, uh, naive or being blind about this really means uh, leaving, uh, for example, uh, black and racialized women behind and also allowing to uh, allowing uh, the instrumentalization of gender violence for uh, the purpose of uh, uh, racist projects. The second problem has to do with the fact that uh, um, we know, I mean, everybody has uh, had an experience with the, with the police or with the juridical system and so on uh, uh, in cases of rape or abuse or gender violence. Uh, uh, is perfectly aware that uh, in most cases uh, it is the victim of uh, violence that, uh, who gets criminalized. And this is uh, uh, a general phenomenon. Uh, this happens everywhere um, from, uh, uh, you know, like um, questioning uh, the, the moral values or uh, habits of uh, women who are victims of rape uh, to further brutalization against uh, these women. And finally, uh, we need to take into account, especially in, in, uh, in a country like the United States, where we have three million of people in prison. Um, so we need to take into account the fact that uh, uh, prisons uh, are the site of gender violence uh, committed and perpetrated by, um, uh, you know, like um, um, against uh, by security forces against. Uh, imprisoned women, and we need to take uh, uh, into account also the police brutality against uh, black and racialized women. So uh, to think that uh, uh, the police are our friends is, uh, let's say, a bit problematic. And with this, I don't want to mean, uh, I don't mean that, uh, you know, women who, uh, who have been victims of uh, uh, gender violence should not go to the police or should not. Uh, this is an individual choice, uh, and women should... Uh, uh, who have been victimized should choose what uh, it is best for them. But in terms of a political project, uh, we cannot, um, you know, support uh, the um, the carceral solution to uh, gender violence because this is not a solution because it actually uh, very often makes things worse <laughs> for the victims and uh, and because it can be very easy and very easily instrumentalized for racist. Uh, project. So from this viewpoint, we need then to elaborate uh, different uh, alternatives um, in, uh, to, to, car to the carceral solution, taking into account that gender violence is a systemic and structural problem. It's not just a problem of, you know, of mean men or evil men uh, attacking women. Uh, it is a, a structural problem that is enabled by specific uh, social mechanisms um, they are related to the uh, to the way in which neoliberalism works, and capitalism works, and so on. And so, there is no possible solution to or real solution to gender violence if we do not uh, examine these mechanisms, and if we do not uh, 
propose uh, solutions uh, that have to do with, uh, uh, for example, the reappropriation of uh, public resources in support of, uh, uh, of battered women, uh, the um, possibility of women to access to uh, an income in order to exit situations of abuse. Uh, so, for example, living uh, you know, violent and abusive relatives, uh, and so, so and, and we need clearly education um, around the gender violence. So we need uh, a series of interventions that have not to do with uh, just you know prison or imprisoning bad men. That have to do rather with changing the con- social conditions that uh, make uh, uh, gender violence uh, acceptable, possible that uh, that increase gender violence and so on. Back in March of 2017, we spoke with historian Marjorie Spruill, author of Divided We Stand, The Battle Over Women's Rights and Family Values That Polarized American Politics, where Marjorie writes about the 1977 Conference on Women's Rights, which she argues split U.S. feminism in two. During our conversation, Marjorie pointed out how conservatives marched against and protested the conference outside, while inside, liberal feminists were debating over how inclusive they should be, distancing themselves from the more marginalized who also attended. How has, how does your manifesto overcome the shortcomings that Marjorie Sproul points out when it comes to inclusion that we saw back in 1977? Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, this, uh, by the way, it's already in the title. We, we, we call uh, uh, our uh, feminist proposal, Feminist for the 19th Percent, Precisely because what we have in mind is a universalistic feminism. So a feminism that begins for a, from a specific uh, viewpoint on reality, which is a feminist anti-capitalist viewpoint, but also articulates a proposal uh, of liberation for everybody. But more specifically, uh, in terms of the, of, the, uh, of the debates that are happening today within feminism, we uh, took a very, and we take a very strong uh, stance about uh, for example, the fact that we, when we speak about women, we always mean both cis and trans women. Uh, so in other words, we are uh, absolutely hostile to the uh, exclusion of uh, trans women from uh, feminist movements or from feminist analysis, uh, and we find this uh, uh, extremely problematic. So um, Feminist for the 99% then is uh, a trans uh, feminist manifesto, um, and it is, and also uh, what we uh, thought was uh, absolutely important to do was to learn the lessons from uh, black feminism, uh, the black feminism, anti-racist feminism uh, gave us over the course of the decade in order to avoid the same kind of problems uh, that we had with the uh, first and second wave feminism. So in order to avoid uh, developing uh, political analysis or uh, projects that uh, uh, think of themselves as universalistic, as valid for everybody, but actually that they exclude, they end up excluding and leaving behind racialized and uh, and, uh, and black uh, and black women. Um, finally, we also go a step further in the sense that uh, we do not uh, um, uh, believe in uh, separatist feminism. So, in other words, um, what we think is that in order to really uh, address the root causes of our oppression. As you said earlier, we need to get rid of capitalism. Uh, so, um, But we cannot do this alone. Um, so in order to get rid of capitalism, we really need to 
build alliances. We need, we, we need to be part of a, uh, of a general uh, movement of uh, mobilizing, mo- mobilizing the entire society. So for this, from this viewpoint, at the end, the last uh, thesis uh, of the manifesto, we speak of the necessity of uh, uh, struggling together uh, with the other movements. Uh, environmentalist, uh, labor movement, uh, uh, anti-racist movement, uh, and so on. So, uh, struggling together, uh, uh, finding uh, uh, common ground, um, without, uh, for this reason, renouncing anything about our own feminist perspective. Because one of the mistakes that we could make is that in order to uh, create unity among different uh, oppressed people or uh, um, in the working class, in order to create unity, we need to then uh, ignore differences or ignore uh, the inequalities that exist also among us. Uh, this would be a terrible mistake. I think we need to start um, by taking into account these differences and the different ways in which we are oppressed under capitalism um, and, uh, and what um, differentiates <laughs> in terms of you know, the concrete experience of oppression black women, for example, and white women, or uh, immigrant women and women who are citizens and so on. So we need to start from this uh, uh, difference and taking them into account. Uh, and at the same, and, uh, on this basis, uh, elaborate projects of uh, liberation for everybody uh, that are projects uh, that tackle each uh, and every one of these uh, uh, issues and show how these various issues and these various uh, forms of oppression are actually internally connected to each other. They are not separate phenomena. Uh, they are uh, different, but at the same time uh, connected to each other and connected to capitalism. I just got a few more questions for you, Cinzia. You write, what passes for sexual liberation often recycles capitalist values, new heterosexual cultures based on hookups and online dating urge young women to own their sexuality but continue to rate them by their looks as defined by men. Exhorting self-ownership, neoliberal discourses pressure girls to pleasure boys, licensing male sexual selfishness in exemplary capitalist fashion. How does neoliberalism turns sexual liberation for women into pleasuring boys? And is self-ownership the same as sexual liberation? Yeah. yeah. So it's a great question. Um, no, not really in the sense that uh, um, really, I mean, if we look at the way, second way feminists uh, analyze uh, you know, the repression of sexuality in our societies, the uh, we can see that there is there has been a really a significant shift um, in the way in which sexuality is regulated and organized uh, and shaped uh, today under neoliberalism. So, in other words, um, while uh, um, you know discourses about you know sexual repression, the repression you know norm repressive norms uh, that would control uh, and uh, repress uh, human uh, and especially women's sexuality and so on. Uh, this kind of analysis uh, uh, applied well to the, you know, to the societies uh, uh, under what we make or maybe for these societies. Uh, but what we saw with the uh, neoliberalism is actually a change from this viewpoint. So in other words, um, we had a, a process in which, um, in a sense, individual sexual freedom have been uh, um, achieved. Um, so there is uh, now uh, a much, uh, a di- you know, much more diverse 
multiplicity of uh, uh, sexual practices, uh, sexual orientations, uh, the shaping of different sexual identities, uh, sexual identities that uh, uh, um, that were uh, uh, extremely uh, marginalized are now uh, have now become at least in informal terms or in form in form of you know presentation, public presentation, communication, uh, mainstream, and so on. So. The, the kind of regulation of sexuality that we have under capitalism is very under liberalism is very different from the past, um, and, and therefore we need a different kind of analysis. Uh, so we cannot rely on the same analysis that was uh, uh, articulated in uh, you know 40, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and it is different from the past precisely because it leaves a space for uh, uh, individual self ownership, sexual self ownership. And, but at the same time, it does so by commodifying it, uh, and by basically increasingly commodifying sexual identities, identities increasingly uh, um, normalizing them. Uh, so from this viewpoint, uh, the risk is that uh, um, what appears as uh, a greater sexual liberation, which from some extent, or a greater sexual freedom, which from some extent is actually also the case, uh, also um, uh, hides um, a different form of uh, oppression. Um, and in this case, uh, this has to do precisely with uh, increasing, for example, differentiation between uh, you know, uh, gay middle class uh, that has access to normalization, to uh, ways of life that are similar to, the, to those of uh, heterosexual families and so on, and then uh, 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 poor uh, working class, marginalized, racialized, uh, peer, peer people. And uh, this is a phenomenon that uh, has already been observed by a number of, uh, uh, of uh, LGBT or queer authors like Peter Drucker, uh, already on the media was speaking about this uh, uh, three decades uh, ago and so on. So um, clearly, you know, self, sexual self-ownership is not the same as sexual liberation in what sense? In the sense that uh, Sexual liberation was uh, the project of the creation of a society uh, where uh, um, uh, meaningful uh, uh, different sexual practices would be possible and meaningful uh, sexual relations uh, of uh, various and uh, different kinds would be possible and not uh, oppressed or regulated and so on. Uh, and the, the problem is, this, is that we um, are in a situation which apparently we do have we have we now have this possibility so that women can actually uh women LGBT, LGBT people can actually leave forms of sexuality and sexual identity uh, that are uh, more varied um but uh, uh, in a sense that this is uh, in large part an illusion because the concrete uh, social conditions material conditions that would allow for uh, uh, sexual liberation are not in place Cinzia, one last question for you. We have been speaking with writer and philosopher Cinzia Aruza, co-author of Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. Cinzia wrote the manifesto with past This Is Hell guest Titi Bhattacharya and upcoming This Is Hell guest Nancy Fraser. You can follow Cinzia on Twitter at Cinzia Aruza, that's C-I-N-Z-I-A-A-R-R-U-Z-Z-A. We have one last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. One of the things that's amazing, first of all, 
This book is amazing, and I think everybody should read it. It's, <laughs> only, it's only about 65 pages long. It's, a, it's an easy but intense read. It really is a fantastic book, and everybody should be reading this book. One of the great things about it that you, uh, uh, different from 1977, is far more intersectionalism, how this kind of new wave of feminism, this feminist manifesto could encourage a, a universal uh, support for feminism. So... In that intersectional, universal world, how does feminism benefit? God, I'm going to hate asking this question. How does feminism benefit men? Oh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, that's a tricky question. Uh, well, um, the kind of feminism we propose would benefit men, uh, first of all, because uh, we. Um, Oh, you know, because it would benefit everybody, <laughs> in other words, because we are suggesting that uh, the, the, the same uh, social uh, relations, that oppress, uh, women are the same, that also, contrib- you know, that also uh, create the framework for uh, the exploitation of uh, men's labor, the oppression of uh, immigrant men, and so on and so on. So in other words, if once we say, we need, you know, like, we need to get read of the root cause, which is capitalism, then uh, this would clearly benefit everybody. At the very least, we, we will be alive. <laughs> but at the very least, we will uh, have better chances to stop climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the struggles we speak about in the manifesto, are struggles that uh, have to do with, uh, for example, universal health care, um, labor rights, um, you know, transitional struggles. I mean, the, 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 at the end of the day, we really need to get rid of capitalism. But in the meantime, we can also fight with the, for very specific uh, uh, demands, uh, such as, uh, you know, free education, universal health care, um, labor rights, uh, you know, lowering the rate of exploitation and so on. And all of these, uh, uh, of these targets, uh, clearly are target, targets that also include men, uh, not just uh, women. Uh, at the same time, uh, what we say is that uh, uh, the way, you know, like the way in which women suffer from, uh, um, you know, privatization of healthcare or uh, of education, and so on, is different uh, and is worse than uh, the way men suffer from this. So, from this viewpoint, starting from a feminist analysis uh, means to actually go deeper into the critique of uh, of this uh, uh, neoliberal uh, policy. Uh, because it, it, it means to show not only that you know, liberal policies uh, are bad for all of us, but also that they are specifically bad or uh, uh, particularly bad for uh, um, uh, for women and for uh, feminized people, for uh, um, racialized women and for uh, queer people. So um, in this sense, then, you know, like what the, the general propo- proposition is, you know, let's fight together uh, with men uh, to get rid of these uh, conditions altogether. However, <laughs> I must also say that uh, this is this is in itself is not sufficient. In other words, in order to fight together, in order to be in a common struggle uh, with men, uh, it is also necessary for men to understand uh, what women's oppression is about, what gender oppression is about, and to revise, uh, you know, their own prejudices, uh, beliefs. Uh, and behaviors that act, that actually contribute to reproducing sexism on an interpersonal level and so on. This has to do, for example, with 
questioning the way in which our organizations work, uh, you know, like our uh, unions, our uh, uh, labor organizations in general, our uh, anti-racist organizations, and so on. So how they work, how they actually may contribute to reproduce sexism uh, or racism, and uh, um, and questioning, you know, like uh, a certain form of masculinity, of toxic masculinity. Uh, from this viewpoint, I would say that, um, you know, like uh, the regulation of sexuality and the, the shaping of gender identities through uh, all these uh, mechanisms of, of control, of regulation that are connected with capitalism and so on, clearly affect uh, women in and queer people in particular. They are, you know, the first to be under attack and, and oppressed by this. But I think that they also impoverish uh, men's life, you know, cis men's. Uh, life. In other words, they also force upon them forms of masculinity that are, uh, in my view, a limit for uh, personal development, personal flourishing, and so on. So, even from from this viewpoint, I think that uh, questioning gender roles, questioning uh, a certain kind of masculinity, um, in uh, I think would actually be uh, a benefit for men too. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, I don't want to sound as, you know, like as if I wanted to sell feminine for 99% to men. In other words, uh, you know, like we should uh, we should uh, fight together, um, you know, for the benefit of everybody, but also taking into account that we as women are suffering the most. Right. Cynthia, I really appreciate you being on the show. This, like I was saying, is a fantastic book. Everybody should go read Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp. This is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp. One of the ways you can make sure that doesn't happen is go to thisishell.com and click on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support where we have T-shirts and tote bags and stainless steel coffee mugs. Thanks this week goes to the tithing commitment of Daniel, Brett, and Magnificent Me. And special thanks to Gabriel, who writes, One mug, please. I broke my old one this morning, literally listening to This Is Hell. Gabriel, the mug that we'll be sending you will not break. As I was saying, our new mugs are stainless steel and not ceramic, which may have been a real bad idea on our part because that eliminates the possibility of people wanting replacement mugs that have been broken. Damn it. We should have considered built-in obsolescence in our business model. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell. Go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you can get a coffee mug, t-shirt, or tote bag. In a few minutes, we will welcome back to This Is Hell on the eve of Turkey's presidential election political scientist, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast, who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's Turkey, Turkey's autocratic president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is rushing to shore, shore up the economy ahead of this month's uh, elections, but the economy's woes are deeper than any macroeconomic tweak can fix. 
in, let's see, this is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. Max first appeared on our show in July 2016, but since he was last on, he was arrested in Turkey, imprisoned for three months, and is facing a trial in two weeks. So Max will be reporting to us live from house arrest in Ankara, Turkey. We'll talk to Max about his arrest and tomorrow's elections in Turkey in just a few. You can follow Max's case on Twitter at hashtag free Max Zerngast or just at Max Zerngast. No, free Max Zerngast. All right, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? What are you, you ethically consuming under capitalism? All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show. Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. To still have a chance at winning this week's prize, again, a book we featured on last week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Alex. Oh, uh, Max actually is on Twitter now. It's just Max Zerngast. Well, we, no, I'm just saying, too, if you want to follow the campaign. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, okay, well, Tom D. said, dumpster diving, the doomsday vault. <laughs> what are you ethically <laughs> consuming? That? Uh, that was Tom D. Uh, via email. Uh, on Twitter, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Jubaka814 said, Soylent Green. Gadzooks B said, Ethicos, the breakfast cereal with moral fiber. <laughs> ben J. Pokta said, Myself. <laughs> and Rock Taster said, Dog crap toast made by struggling first responder heroes. <laughs> what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Chris N. said, Where can I learn how to lean back like someone with that, li- like that, with, ma- with mouth agape? Uh, those are respond this is not work on the radio but there's a uh, uh talking about the image i posted uh i have fun just finding uh, images of white women shopping for these sort of things angela m said hatred for the patriarchy what do you consume what are you ethically consuming under capitalism andrea j said the rich steve k said expired cord blood nathan- expired what cord blood okay uh, nathan l said nothing but the choicest pages from the rarest ethical philosophy books to fulfill my daily fiber intake <laughs> Camillo P. said, I bit my cheek by accident. <laughs> what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Nick A. said, ass. Wild Somalian ass. Grass-fed and free-range. Oh, no, that's not ethical at all because they are critically endangered. <laughs> Zuli K. says, my soul. Oh, wait, I'm not the one consuming that. <laughs> Zach A. said, munchies. Wally R. said, peeps. Rich G. said, I only obey traffic lights if they are LED bulbs. Amy M said, whatever won't lead to my needing $400 insulin. Matt R or Matt M said, rage. Evan D said, <laughs> weed I grow organically, nay, biodynamically in my yard, fertilized with the blood of the rich. I'm really surprised that it took this long for weed to come up. Uh, w- uh, just wait. I know. I figured. Uh, Nathan R said, episodes of This is Hell. <laughs> Muriel C said, Trader Joe's orange chicken. <laughs> Gorilla G said, likes shares and unsolicited nudes. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Kim G said chickpeas. Jintaris D said. Wait, wait. What? Chickpeas? How is yes. that? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Jintaris D said pure umami. <laughs> Pete V says porn. Rob B says booze. William C said, but don't we all subsist on joy in the explosive feculent expulsions of our divine overlords? Lily had to look up feculent. <laughs> Kenneth Y. said, union membership. Michael C. said, ass. 
What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Louis D. said Soylent Green. Chandler H. said the only ethical consumption I'll ever be a part of is when the maggots eat my irradiated corpse. <laughs> Dave S. says ethically consuming the rich. Devil emoji, devil emoji. Wally R. said Yankee Candles, trademark. Lisa B. said Pomplamoose LaCroix and Ding Dongs. Adam A. said Cake. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Simone T. said, The stream of goods seamlessly shipped, moved, and delivered by the market. Al B. said, All natural male enhancement supplements. John K. said, Hot dogs. Hot dog emoji. Lots of hot dogs. <laughs> hot, dog. hot dog emoji. <laughs> Jessica B. says, Delicious and healthy meat harvested from cells. Ew. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Craig S. says alcohol. George H. says beer from my boss's fridge. <laughs> Who's that? Uh, it's George H. Fabio L. says accelerationist schadenfreude. <laughs> That's very good, Fabio. Uh, Mark S. says vintage Zap comics. Scott A. says metabolism is murder. <laughs> Stephen S. says the manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. Also, Chuck, go on Chapo. <laughs> Christine M. says guillotines. Warren L. says, ethanol. Mark A. says, I'm using ordinary tap water instead of Fiji bottled water for my bong. <laughs> David R. says, government cheese. Dennis H. says, my sanity. Mike M. says, vegan, permacultural, intersectional, gender fluid, dark web edibles. <laughs> wow. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Dennis H. says, whatever I can hold down after a long night of drinking. John M. says, passion. Andrew T. says, I have achieved footprint zero. By living in a landfill, eating only roadkill, and donating my poop to farmers. Jeremy T. says, Pop-Tarts. I don't think there's an ethical issue with it. <laughs> Wait, breaking news. Kellogg Company exposed, uh, expose reveals child labor laws, violations in third world country. God damn it. <laughs> Sorry about your Pop-Tarts, Jeremy. Tom D. says, emoji carcinogens. And then a emoji of, so I guess my mouse doesn't hold over that. Uh, bacon and a cigarette and a drink. Adam C. says, my own tears. Jeffy D says, sustainably harvested, cruelty-free teriyaki snow leopard hearts on a stick. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Just a few left. Joel S says, shiny fishing lures. Adam M says, leftovers. Roy Lee N says, tissue paper. Clarence N says, the blood of Christian children. What are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Eric T said, I drunkenly bought a painting of Homie the Clown from a homeless artist last night. Best 20 bucks I've spent in a long time. Sounds like you already won, Eric. Uh, Peter J says, air. Gabriel C says, self-hatred. And James H says, I fry up a cutlet of bourgeois pork at least once a week. Mm-mm, good. Gabriel C said, self-hatred. I like that one, too. All right, let me just write that down real quick so I don't forget. Let's see. My response to the question from Mel, what are you ethically consuming under capitalism? Well, first, I thought it said ethnically consuming under capitalism and I was going to say Pozzole but then I realized it said ethically and of course you're going to think I'm going to say weed because I reply far too often to all the questions from hell with weed or some weed related response and I'm going to say it again here because I truly believe the only things I'm consuming ethically under capitalism are sex and weed all right, let's see. Oh, I, sorry. Uh, one more person, Monetary Magic, just chimed in, and he wrote Sonic the Hedgehog fan fiction. <laughs> uh, also, you're getting your pasole from the place across the street. Uh, yes, or um, El Carrito. Yeah, it's great. 
Yeah, El Corrido's really good, too. Uh, the caldos over at El Pueblo are also awesome, too. The Levante de Muertos, the Rising of the Dead soup, is my favorite one. Uh, Tom D. said, Dumpster Diving the Doomsday Vault. I liked Andrea J. saying they're rich. A few people said that. Uh, let's see. Oh, um, Camillo saying he bit his cheek. Julie K., my soul. Kim G. chickpeas, because I didn't really get that. Wally saying Yankee Candles. There were so many in there that were so... So unethical under capitalism that I just didn't like Pop-Tarts. I didn't really get Joel S. saying uh, shiny fishing lures. That was a good one. Gabriel C. I really liked his saying he consumes self-hatred. And I'm torn between that and George H. saying beer from my boss's fridge. I'm going to go with George H. saying that what he is consuming ethically under capitalism is beer. From his boss's fridge, George, you are the winner of Flint Taylor's new book, The Torture Machine, which we featured on last week's show. And you could go to thisishell.com to hear that entire interview. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everybody who dropped by this week. Thanks to Wally, Theron, John, another John, Johnny, and yet another John, Leo, Dave, Elliot, Jordan, Shelley, Pete, Tom, Brian, Brian, Michelle, and everyone else I can't remember because I spent all day working on a guest who ended up canceling. So I really needed to drink and a lot. You, too, can join us at Carrie's, the bar downstairs, from our studio every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 2251 West Devon. Let's go back into listener feedback for a few minutes. This one's from Tom, who always has great guest suggestions. Tom writes, hi, Chuck. Hi, Alex. Hey, Chuck, don't you think you should interview someone who can explain to your listeners the ideological tensions and affinities between crypto-libertarian and crypto-communist visions? If so, you might wish to invite Michael Bowens or Matteo Peruzet Garza Cns into This Is Hell to discuss Matteo's dissertation, Ideological Tensions and Affinities Between Crypto-Libertarian, oh, and Crypto-Communist, not Communist, Communist Visions. From the introduction, Tom adds this. Chapter 3 will evaluate the radically different socioeconomic visions held by crypto-libertarians and crypto-communists. By analyzing Bitcoin and Faircoin, it will be shown that a crypto-communist approach prioritizes blockchain's potential to enhance collaborative models of economic organization and commons-based peer production. Tom, it's a great suggestion, but I'd have to spend all day looking up all these words and concepts. So you might have to give me a few weeks to do that kind of research. We've been wanting to talk to somebody about cryptocurrency and crypto stuff for a really long time. The problem is by the time the books are published on the topics, things have changed so much that they rarely stay relevant. So hopefully Tom's suggestion will, because like I said, crypto stuff is a topic we would love to learn about and discuss here on This Is Hell. And this week, I was at the store, a grocery store, and I saw one of those... Coinstar machines where you dump all your change in and you it turns into actual cash. 
at the grocery store near my house, the Coinstar machine, you can actually get Bitcoin through the Coinstar machine. So I'm going to take a ton of change over to Cermak Produce today and see if I can actually get one Bitcoin with all the change that I've saved up. All right. We've been... Uh, oh, uh, hey, look who we emailed us. Uh, look at that. It's... Um, Roosevelt Institute's Saki Bhatti, who's been on our show in the past. He writes, Hey, Chuck, it's been a while. How have you been? I wanted to share this new report with you that we put out last week laying out a progressive financial agenda for Chicago that would allow us to fund universal child care, free community college, making the CTA free, and a massive homeless homelessness alleviation program. Please let me know if you'd like to talk about this on your show. Take care. Saki. Yes, we definitely want to discuss that study with you, and uh, Alex will be bugging you soon to get you back on the show uh, because your insights into Chicago are fascinating, and you can hear our conversations with Saki Bhatti by going to thisishell.com, and you just search on his name, B-H-A-T-T-I. Uh, let's see, anything else? Oh, yeah, one last thing. We got an email from someone who joined us at Office Hours last month. Great to meet you last week. It carries. Been listening for about three months, and I've really appreciated your work. Also, thanks for the introduction to another postal worker, fun talking shop with another mailman. He mentioned you want to set up something for working people to have a discussion and turn it into a podcast of sorts. I think it's a fabulous idea. More people need to know uh, how more of us work in order for more of us to relate just how lousy we all have it. Anyways, hope you're well and look forward to the show this week. Best Garrett. P.S. You've mentioned a free book at Office Hours. How do I get on that list? First, Garrett, there's no list. I was supposed to give you one when you drop by Office Hours. Drop by and I promise to give you two. Secondly, I was talking to the other postal worker and he and I had this idea of using the studio space above the bar for other stuff, and he talked about having me talk to people about their jobs, kind of like Studs Terkel in his classic book, Working. Not that I'm comparing myself to Studs because we are very different for one thing. Studs is dead. But, yeah, uh, there, this is an idea I've been tossing around. And once we are totally moved in the studio and it's up and running without any quirks, we'll see what we'll be doing with that space. All right. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a past guest is out of prison and under house arrest, and he'll get us caught up on what's happening in Turkey on the eve of their presidential election. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show, for supporting the show, tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Turkey's economy is spiraling downward as the country readies itself for a presidential election tomorrow here to tell us what he's been up to and what tomorrow's vote means for the people of Turkey. Live from House Arrest in Ankara, Turkey, political scientist, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast co-wrote the Jacobin article, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. Uh, thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to be back with you again. It's great to have you back on the show, sir. I'm glad to hear that you are now no longer in jail. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. Max first appeared on our show in July 2016. Now, you can follow Max on Twitter by just going to Max at Max Zerngast, but you can also follow uh, Max's case on Twitter at hashtag free Max Zerngast and at 
free Max Zern guest. So let's cut, get caught up to where you've been since the last time you appeared on This Is Hell. On December 24 of last year, you were arrested after spending three months in, or no, you're released, sorry, after spending, I was released, yeah. right, released after spending three months in a Turkish jail. You were charged with membership in a terrorist organization. You told Jacobin Magazine that the terrorist group you were accused of being a member is the TKPK. This abbreviation stands for Communist Party of Turkey Spark. The uh, organization was never listed as a terrorist organization. The history ends in the year 1995. It hasn't even been proven that the organization still exists. What led the Turkish police to believe you are a member of a terrorist organization that isn't terrorist or an organization? Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question. I don't know either. Um, I mean, I know to some extent uh, that's how things work uh, work here in Turkey, unfortunately. I mean, the things we write, I uh, get the sense that sometimes we write about these things, about mass arrests, um, I don't know, house raids every day. Like now, in, leading up to the election, we have house raids of uh, mostly uh, Kurdish or pro-Kurdish um, people uh, active in the in the HDP uh, every day. Like people that would be working on election day uh, or even be elected in some kind of office, uh, they are now uh, in prison or at least uh, in police custody. So we we kind of write about this, but it still seems much seems strange. But uh, yeah, I mean that's what how things happen here. Um, um, so I mean that's that's kind of things. Now I just want to. Say one thing, I'm not under house arrest right now. Um, I can leave the house. I just cannot leave the country. So I'm not allowed to leave the country um, until, well, whenever the, the court decides to lift my travel ban. So when you do leave your home, are you under constant surveillance? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary because, I'm, I mean, I'm under, I have to go to... Um, the police station once a week, um, just to show that I'm still here, not flat or whatever. Uh, and also, I mean, the, we have the trial still going on. Actually, the first uh, hearing will be in about two weeks, uh, one and a half weeks. So um, I don't know if I'm on the constant way, but it's possible that people are, are watching, obviously. How were you treated during your detention? Because here in the States, we are very much stuck with the Midnight Express idealization of Turkish prisons. That's the only vision that we have of what Turkish, what incarceration is like in Turkey. So how were you treated during your detention? <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I was treated any better or worse than like the average prisoner. So a very good friend of mine was uh, with me in prison and... I was thankful for that because he had the prison experience uh, from earlier. Uh, yeah, he spent time in prison earlier, so that was uh, very important for me. If I would have been alone, it would have been very tough for me um, because I didn't know what to expect. He knew, so that was helpful. Um, I wasn't treated badly or anything. I mean, there, there were occasional in, uh, incidents with um, you know the, 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 the guards in prison, but I assume that happens to everyone. So it was a high-security prison. I think the, the supermax prisons in the United States are very similar. Not exactly the same, but similar to this kind of prison type, the F-type prison in Turkey. And we were quite isolated for three months. It was a very short period of time. So, I mean, that was the, the good thing for us. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people in prison here. 
uh, in much worse uh, situations than I am. Uh, but we were completely isolated, so uh, we didn't have any. Um, we didn't have a right for for visitors except for family members, and we did not see any other inmate except um, you know each other in the same cell. On April 11th, you are going to have your next hearing. What are the your first one, or first yeah. one right? Uh, what are your hopes for? a fair hearing, and subsequently a fair trial where you will be found not guilty? Well, I mean, it, it, the thing is, uh, my, my hope is, and that's probably the best-case scenario, is that we have a relatively uh, neutral judge. I, I don't know who we are um, confronted with because we haven't, we haven't seen the judge, actually. So we were released after the indictment was released. So uh, it took three months until there was an indictment there. And uh, the moment the, the court accepted the indictment of the state's attorney, uh, we were released because there's really nothing in there. It's a choke, even by Turkish standards. Uh, I mean, we don't have a lot of time to go into that deal, but it's not that important, but it's, re- it's really a choke. I mean, there, there was like um, kind of uh, summer classes, summer school uh, courses that we did with children in a poor neighborhood uh, were um, portrayed as an attempt to recruit people, um, militants, to a terrorist organization. I mean, they just see, basically, where these things are going to. Um, However, I mean, what I expect is that we have a judge that at least listens to our side of the story, and then the chances are not so bad, actually, to, to, well, you know, get acquitted of all those charges at some point, but it will take a lot of hearings. I mean, that's the standard here in this case of, um, you know, in quotation marks, terror uh, trials. They take three, four, five hearings. Sometimes it takes years uh, until uh, you get a decision. You write how everything is de facto just waved through when it comes to Turkish justice. What the police want usually happens as well. The questions that the prosecutor asks are given to him by the police. The police also discussed with the judge, which is completely illegal, it had also already been predetermined that we are going to be arrested. So even if the indictment is a joke, does that make any difference? Well, it makes some form of difference. I mean, uh, yeah, at least until you get thrown into prison, and at least until you have the first hearing of a real court. By a real court, I mean a court that can at least take a look at the indictment, that they can look at the material that is provided with. Uh, uh, until that point, it's really in the hands of the police. Because what they do is they throw thousands of pages in front of the judge, and he has basically five minutes to go through that and make a decision. It's uh, it's for him structurally impossible uh, to do that. And that is part of the system, actually. I think Turkey is one of the countries, uh, the country in the European Union, with the lowest number of judges per person of the of per capita of the population. At the same time, it's probably the country with the most trials. So the churches cannot engage with uh, seriously with uh, what is uh, what they're confronted with. And it's going to be the same at the trial here. So the first hearing, I mean, we're lucky if the church looks at the indictment the day before and not in the, the, the morning of the, the trial, right? But so if, uh, if that happens and if there's a church that, that is going to listen, that already counts as the positive. And in that case, um, well, we have to see, but I'm, I'm not that pessimistic, actually. It is the lack of judges 
and the abundance of trials that seems to make the justice system at least inefficient. Is that intentional? Why not yeah. bring in a whole... Yeah. Go ahead. Yes, it's intentional. It's not... Uh, to some extent, it's intentional. The other thing is, I mean, we wrote about this in the last years, that as a consequence uh, of the, the state of exception after the coup d'etat in, or the attempted coup d'etat in 2016, uh, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of state personnel released, and many of them were state authorities and churches. So, in fact, it can happen to you that you're confronted with a church or a state attorney who just graduated from, from university, 23, 24 years. So uh, that happens quite a lot. So they have no experience at all, and they're confronted with cases and have to make decisions about people's lives. Like they're going to send us supposedly to prison for seven years. I mean, that is not an easy decision, but it happens all the time. And that is in part intentional, in part it is also an expression of the state crisis. So you told an interviewer in January that you do not see yourself as a hostage. You said, I'm collateral damage. What do you mean by collateral damage? How is that different from being a, po- uh, a hostage? And do you see yourself as a political prisoner? What, what I meant was this. Uh, there was an, an, you know, a kind of a widespread opinion in, in, in Europe, in Austria, in my home country, especially, that I was taken to prison as an attempt to confront Austria. So it is a kind of an inter-state uh, um, hostage-taking. So it wasn't about me, but about, you know, kind of uh, creating an international crisis once again to use it for uh, domestic political purposes or whatever, as has happened before, as has happened with uh, some international journalists, like Denis Yujel, for example. And what I said was that, in fact, I was not um, a political prisoner like, for example, Denis Yujel, or maybe even uh, Pastor Prince, to some extent. Um, which uh, you uh, in the United States are more familiar with. <clears throat> what I uh, tried to say was that I was taken as a, uh, a, you know, as someone in an operation against the democratic opposition in Turkey, in Ankara, in con- uh, to be concrete. And this is why I was collateral damage. So it was an attempt to silence the opposition, the legal uh, democratic socialist opposition in Turkey itself, and since I'm also involved in, you know, political initiatives here, I'm writing also for Turkish newspapers, uh, I was taken as well. That's what I meant by this. So I was not an international hostage in that sense. So, but are you a political prisoner? Yes, of okay. course. Okay. I mean, we are all political prisoners. I mean, uh, the, the majority of the so-called terror charges are against political prisoners. So you told Jacobin that your acceptance speech for the Carl Renner Prize that you sent to Vienna was censored. That's the Dr. Carl Renner Solidarity Prize, which is awarded each year by the Austrian Journalist Club, and you are Austrian. How censored are you right now? Are you only limited in your responses when it comes to your arrest, detention, and pending hearing and possible trial? Or do you face more broad censorship that, than only what relates to your legal case? Um, I, I'm not even that censored. I mean, I'm just trying to be a little bit more diplomatic in some aspects, more careful about the things that I, I talk about and don't talk about. Um, but it has less to do with the case. I mean, that is one of the reasons. But it has more to do with um, the increasing pressure uh, and repression against 
every, every form of opposition here in Turkey itself. So what we are witnessing here throughout the last years, and our writing has kind of accompanied that process live throughout the last years, is we witness a regime change. Uh, it's the, and, and this is the official language. They try to create a new uh, system. Right? They call it the presidential system. Uh, you know, but what happens under that header is uh, a complete restructuring of the state and of the relation of state and society. And that is why some things that one could easily say three, four, five years ago are no longer sayable. For example, in my indictment, um, there's only one Chakravan article, uh, in fact, uh, listed there. They probably didn't translate the others. Uh, and I used the term North Kurdistan. And I mean, the, three years ago, four years ago, when I wrote this article, that wasn't a big deal. Uh, the president himself spoke of Kurdistan. But now, uh, this is something that you find in indictment, and sometimes it's even a reason for uh, sentencing people. So there you see that this is an objective transformation uh, on an objective and move towards more censorship and necessarily self-censorship if you're living here. You said of the day of your arrest, I thought to myself, okay, now it's happening. Did you feel your arrest was inevitable? Well, it wasn't in- inevitable, but um, if, you, um, if you write the things that I, I write, and you know, if you declare socialist as I am, um, that is something you have to expect. I mean, if you don't expect, it would be a mistake. It would be, if it doesn't happen, well, good. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice, but you know it can happen. And you've got to be prepared for that. So that's what I meant by that. So let's get to your more recent writing. In your article last week at Jacobin, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's uh, Turkey, you write Turkey's local elections for mayor, municipal councils, and neighborhood represent- representatives will be held on March 31st, that's tomorrow, at this point with Turkey's uh, deepening process of fascization, every election is treated as a referendum on President Erdogan's rule, and discontent is brewing in broad swaths of society. So how certain is it that Erdogan will win tomorrow's election? Is it certain because the actual voting process is is corrupt? Is it because the process by which people get on the ballot is corrupt? Or is Erdogan simply that popular? Well, um, I mean, it's it's not certain that he will he will win. I mean, he's actually not you know, it, it's not him he, who is going to be elected. He's the president. But the interesting thing is that, and that's what we 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 stated there is that he is on the front page of the news all the time, and he turns the election from a municipal election, from local elections, into a vote on his own rules, and, and that goes for every election now. You, you would think that, you know, okay, what does it matter if, if his party loses two or three cities that it held before? I mean, he's still going to be the president, and, you know, basically all the state apparatuses are, going, are in his hands, under his control. So what does it matter? But the specificity of the process in Turkey, this um, system, the transformation of the system, this, uh, you know, remodeling of, the, of, the, of state and state and society relations, uh, that I spoke of before, is the reason for him treating it that way. So he might very well win uh, a majority, or he's go- certainly his party is going to win a majority uh, of the cities, 
But uh, the, the crucial thing is the three big cities, or actually two big cities, Istanbul and Ankara. So uh, those two cities are held by uh, his party and associates, by himself, actually, uh, at some point in the 90s. Uh, since 94, so even before uh, the AKP and Erdogan came to power, they were strong uh, in local administration. He himself was the mayor of Istanbul, and an associate of him was the mayor of Ankara. And in Istanbul, there was a slight change. Yeah, there was some trouble, but still, in Ankara, there was for 25 years, the mayor was always of the same party. Uh, and these are crucial things in Dutch for several reasons. Because most of the political corruption, economic corruption also at the same, uh, same time, uh, happens on this local level. And also, it's a very good uh, base. If you control a city, you can integrate many people uh, in, well, some form of economic relations and uh, relations of interest to your own party. So it's, you can provide jobs, you can provide all other forms of um, support, economic support to people from that uh, position. And so that's why these local elections are very important. Also, losing one of the two big cities, the capital Ankara or Istanbul, and it's more likely that they will lose Ankara. Uh, and that's, uh, if, uh, you know, things go more or less normal, it seems like they are going to lose Ankara. Um, that would be of uh, high political and symbolic importance, because that would mean that they are not unbeatable, and that would lead to, well, possibly it would lead, it's one uh, possibility, an eruption of the very fragile, uh, you know, alliances formed uh, within the state. Because we have to see that Erdogan and his party are not the only um, ruling party any longer. They formed an alliance with a right-wing fascist party, uh, with the, the MHP. In order to be that for him elected to be president, for them to win the parliamentary election last uh, last year, that was necessary. They would not have been able to do it by themselves. So, uh, and you know, beyond the surface surface of this open alliance, there's other alliances in the state. There's several groups within the state that work with Erdogan and the AKP right now, but uh, might possibly withdraw their support at some point when they feel that another camp is stronger. So that is why these elections are so important. How are Turks reacting to Erdogan's alliance with the leader of a fascist party? Is that something that's a popular move? Is that is that talking to his rank and file? Does that does he get support by doing that, or does he lose support by doing that? Well, at this point, you know, it's very interesting that for the last years, um, the overall uh, share of votes like who is with Erdogan or somehow uh, associated with him in an alliance with him, and those who are against him hasn't really changed. It's like 50-50. And the changes are marginal and might be due to, you know, some form of fraud, let's put it uh, in, in those terms. Um, so uh, what, what happened is actually when he formed an alliance with the right-wing fascist party, um, some voters of his did go to that part. <laughs> That's the interesting thing, because they were actually supporters of a more right-wing fascist ideology anyway, 
But for the sake of holding off the opposition, which includes you know, more democratic uh, elements, especially the Kurdish movement, for the sake of holding off that opposition, they supported Erdogan. And now they didn't have to do that uh, by voting for his party any longer. They could just vote their own party and still support him. So uh, th th there hasn't really been a, a change in that regard. You write the main societal issue these days is the economy. While the economy's structural weaknesses erupted into open crisis some time ago, the regime has not been able to maneuver the country out of the doldrums, providing only palliative solutions to the worst woes. To what extent are these shortcomings of Erdogan's government, of his party, and to what extent is this driven by economic factors that are out of his control? Because as we've talked to Dean, uh, economist Dean Baker so often on this show when it comes to the economy here in the U.S., we have an over-exaggerated view of the impact the president has on an economy. So to what extent are these shortcomings, the problems with the economy in Turkey, shortcomings of Erdogan's government? And to what extent is this stuff that's outside of his control? Uh, well, uh, what we have to say first is, uh, without going into detail, that uh, the economic model that is uh, you know, in place in Turkey is in place for a very long time, with, of course, modification. Uh, it was with the, uh, the coup d'etat at that time by the military, uh, supported by the United States, in 1980, that uh, this neoliberal model was introduced and modified, modified until today, but the, the same model is still in place. So what Erdogan did was, they came into power after the, the biggest crisis so far uh, in 2001, where uh, the IMF intervened uh, into the Turkish economy, and Erdogan and his party were actually the ones who were implementing an IMF program, and were fathering neoliberalism in Turkey, thus creating a very specific version of, of neoliberalism. Um, you know, some call it populist neoliberalism. Uh, well, I mean, we can discuss this. It's not that important. But uh, what they did was actually uh, they just continued the policies were uh, proposed by the IMF, uh, which were themselves just a continuation of the Turkish policies, economic policies, since at least 1980. Um, and uh, they created an aura uh, in that, in, 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 with, with these policies, because they were the ones actually then in power when Turkey came out of the crisis, because conditions were relatively good at the time in, in terms of world capitalism. And they created um, Kind of, uh, or they portrayed themselves as the, the saviors, economic saviors. So, and this is why the current crisis might have a large influence on the election. Not because, um, well, they were the real economic saviors, or it was so much due to their policies when they came to power, or they were so much determined in that, let's put it this way, uh, nor because they are now the driving force behind the crisis but rather because they portrayed themselves as the ones who uh, brought prosperity to Turkey. And now with this prosperity in decline, obviously they are going to be held responsible for it. 
You write to put all this in a nutshell. The extreme fragility of the Turkish economy since 2013 has been the result of structural factors, the country's position in the global division of labor and dependency on imports and foreign capital flows, as well as the AKP government's devotion to neoliberal policies, however unorthodox. So can Erdogan save his party, save his presidency by simply abandoning neoliberalism? Well, he, he cannot do that, I think. It's, it's not going to be possible. But what they do is actually, there, uh, there is a constant attempt, at least since 2014, to postpone the crisis. Uh, you know, you have, we have like seven elections in the la- last five or six years. So it's basically all the time there is election time. Uh, all the time he has to win an electoral campaign. And you, uh, as I said, you know, if there's an economic crisis, he would be, at least in part, uh, held responsible for it, as happens now, and that would negatively affect the electoral results of, of, uh, of, of himself or his party. So they kind of continuously postponed the crisis, um, and they're very successful, actually, we have to underscore that, in portraying other forces, like the attack of foreign forces, mostly unspecific, um, you know, some kind of interest lobbies, the United States, whatever, other responsible for that. And that partly might be true, of course, uh, for the, you know, the economic woes at the, the, the time. Uh, so what happened now, actually, just last week, uh, a week ago, was that again, a week before the election, the, the Turkish lira uh, declined in value uh, vis-a-vis the dollar, and then they kind of intervened via uh, very interesting forms of um, well, finance capitalism and, and, and you know banking tricks or whatever you want to call it, uh, in order to stop that devaluation because that would have created a ba- very bad impression before the election. But what is unclear is what's going to be the consequence of that after the election because clearly. Um, foreign investors are upset. So basically what happened is without, again, going into details, they prevented uh, foreign investors from selling the Turkish lira that they had because it would have been so expensive to sell um, the lira so they couldn't sell anymore. But manipulations of this sort, uh, clearly within an international neoliberal frame, uh, the frame of international finance capitalism, upsets investors. So and the consequences of that, uh, sooner or later, might be heavy. So, um, but again, to back to your question in, in particular, uh, the Erdogan government and the you know Turkish fun, uh, capital group, they are so intertwined, also with international finance capital, and the whole uh, economic model rests specifically on uh, the construction sector and on credit-based consumption. So that was the, the kind of Turkish model. And of course, also um, uh, some forms of inflow of finance capital, so-called hot money, from sometimes, well, unknown designations. Um, so yeah, kind of this was, this was the model of growth in Turkey. That was not a growth of the productive economy. It was not a growth based on the, growth, the real growth of real wages or on an you know, increase in, in production sector, uh, industrial sector, but it was a growth based on these kind of uh, rentier economic 
aspect. So classic of, I'd say, peripheral neoliberalism. And this is why there is no real way out of the crisis by continuing with this kind of politics, and they cannot change that at will. Is the problem not Erdogan, but his economic model? What happens when this contradiction is missed, and instead Erdogan is labeled, as you point out, how he's been labeled as an incompetent and irrational authoritarian? What what do we miss in our understanding of the problems with the Turkish economy when we only view it as Erdogan being uh, authoritarian rather than a problem with his economic policy? Well, I think um, what we have been always writing uh, was that, of course, he is the person everyone is focused at, also in Turkey, and also, of course, abroad. But the problem is really, uh, well, the specific uh, capitalist model of Turkey and also the specific history and the specific uh, setup of the Turkish state. It's a very despotic state uh, for a long uh, historical period, actually. And there was never a genuine democratic revolution in Turkey, not even a bourgeois democratic revolution in Turkey. Uh, and this is the actual problem. So it's the kind of the uh, state economy uh, and the way state and economy structures society. Uh, that is the, the actual problem. What we miss is that even if forced by some way or another, Erdogan would be, you know, would leave office or be forced out of office. Uh, the opposition in place, the bourgeois democratic opposition, which is uh, the main opposition, uh, would not do anything substantially different. Uh, maybe at least in the first period, a little bit more democratic. Actually, they have to do that by now uh, in order to um, kind of uh, incorporate uh, those alienated by the state uh, and by the current government. But uh, there would not be a structural break and an actual uh, genuine democratic uh, Turkey in place, even if this government were due uh, to leave or you know, be voted out of office. So what could, in your opinion, what could Erdogan do to stop what you see as a perpetual, continuous drop in his support? Well, what he's trying to do is um, he's trying to form alliances, and he's going to use, and he's already using, threats, obviously, threats of various sorts. We have seen this before, because uh, let's assume the opposition would win major cities. What would that mean? I mean, would they accept it? Would the current regime accept it? Uh, actually, there are some signs that they would there is this uh, very interesting thing that, that they used ever since the state, the state of exception, with the state of exception legislation, that they just replaced mayors uh, of cities, provinces, um, for you know, alleged, uh, alleged ties to terrorist organizations, and replaced them uh, by some bureaucrats sent by the state. And uh, Erdogan suggested that if they would lose Ankara, the capital, they would do something similar. He didn't say it that way, but he said, like, they, they, they started a campaign against the opposition candidate, who is very likely to win if things go uh, normal, as I said. And they suggested that he did something illegal. There were some 
uh, full of corruption, what not. And he would say, well, even if he can compete in the election on election day, uh, we will see what happens afterwards. This is the way they talk all the time. So kind of covered threats. Uh, so this is some of the things that can happen. Also, we have seen this before, after the uh, June 7 election 2015, that there was then afterwards, after the AKP lost uh, the absolute majority, there was a policy of escalation, of war, bombings started to happen. You know, we cannot know if everything was of that was intentional. Uh, but clearly there was an escalation of violence, war, uh, and something similar can happen again. So what this means is, as the opposition, are you ready to take on the responsibility uh, to what happens afterwards? And as of now, mostly the opposition has cowardly backed down from taking responsibility uh, and you know, vote in front of the, the, the power of the state. So this is the, in, the interesting aspect of the Turkish what we call this body state tradition, that most parties, including the opposition, are somehow uh, intertwined with some state interests, some factions within the state. And uh, what Erdogan does, particularly in this election, is they constantly speak about the survival of the state as such. So it's a local election, but he speaks of the survival of the state. If you want the survival of the state, this is a, a term, a concept in Turkish politics. Um, that sounds maybe a little bit ridiculous in English, but uh, this is a term they use. Uh, if you want the survival of the state, then you have to vote for our candidate. Otherwise, you don't just put the current government, the regime at risk, you put the state as such. So this is the, the kind of the, uh, the rhetoric they use uh, in order to convince voters by you know, some forms or various forms of threat, actually. You're right. <clears throat> the problem is not the, only the AKP or Erdogan. Turkey's problems are structural in nature, features of an economy that has reached an impasse and cannot keep kicking the can down the road. The struggle now is over who is going to pay for the current crisis, and it will be a fierce struggle along class lines with or without Erdogan in power. In Turkey, is a class war on the horizon even, and, and, and to what degree is it even inevitable? Well, uh, that we want to see. For now, it's not an open uh, class struggle. It's not necessarily framed so much in terms of uh, labor organizations uh, leading the struggle. Uh, but this will, um, and, and one of the reasons for that is the constant election. So the constant uh, need to frame opposition even in terms of, you know, bourgeois elections in that sense, or in the, you know, the elections by the state or state officials, uh, this class struggle is transferred. So even if people are now upset, angry over the economic situation, and believe me, many are, because inflation is a huge problem, and even if that is the case, they would express it for now by voting for the opposition or maybe not voting at all. If the AKP supporters, they might just refrain from going uh, to vote. Uh, but sooner or later, I think we will see an upsurge of uh, strikes, um, labor organizing, uh, as there has happened already. But the state is very good 
by using you know, methods of well uh, of different kinds to suppress these kind of uh, worker uprisings, strikes, um, the you know intentions for forming a union. The unionization in Turkey is very low; it's about ten percent. Um, there is basically no well. That, there are strikes, but many of the strikes are then actually outlawed by referencing national security or something similar. So uh, ever since, particularly since the uh, state of exception, which is officially no, no longer in place, but it, in fact continues, uh, there has basically an outlawing of strikes and uh, of, um, well, the, the degree of unionization is very low still. Max, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Max Zerngast. He co-wrote the Jacobin article, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. You can follow Max on Twitter, at Max Zerngast. You can find his article at jacobinmag.org. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. Max first appeared on our show in July 2016, and you can hear all of our interviews with him at our website, thisishell.com. Max, as you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You mentioned how the current economic policies date back to the 1980 coup that you said was supported by the United States. Considering that coup, how do are, are Turks sympathetic with the United States and people here in the U.S. that believe that Russia meddled in the 2016 election? Are they sympathetic because they have been the victim of a coup, or are they not sympathetic because the coup, the people who victimized them in the coup, was the United States? Well, not so much because of the coup, but, you know, uh, in the Middle East, uh, nothing goes as well as anti-Americanism. You know, for the right or for the wrong reason. <laughs> So the majority of the people in Turkey, even if their leaders were associated with the United States, and still are, I mean, it's still a NATO country, uh, the majority of the people has not so much love for the United States. <laughs> That's a very nice understatement there, Max. Max, thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. It's thank always you, great to hear your voice. And uh, after April 11th, when I know that you'll be cleared of everything and you'll be a fine and free and happy person again, we definitely want to have you back on the show so we can continue to talk yeah. about your case and make sure that people know about it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. All right. Have a nice one. Yeah, you too. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. During the moment of truth in a couple of minutes, Jeff Dorchin pulls a thread and unravels a unified conspiracy theory of fascism. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people like you before profits, on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash this is hell, I gave my take on Russiagate because, well, you may have noticed that we didn't talk much about Russiagate here on This Is Hell, which in retrospect turns out to have been a real good idea. Instead, we uh, covered a wide range of other issues, and I explained why we reported on those issues instead of obsessing on Russiagate. But you can only hear that on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, and if you do, we will send you a thank you note and some This Is Hell subvertising stickers. This week on Patreon, we shared our May 25th, 2013 conversation with founding editor of Jacobin, Bhaskar Sankara, who is on to talk to us about his article at The Nation, 
Letter to the Nation from a young radical liberalism, including much of what's published in The Nation magazine, seems well-intentioned but inadequate. The solution lies in the re-emergence of American radicalism. But again, that interview is not available anywhere online except at patreon.com slash thisishell, and you can only hear that by becoming a subscriber and supporter of This Is Hell. Special thanks to the person who joined us on Patreon this week, Nate B., Thanks for joining us on Patreon. We now have 336 subscribers to our Patreon podcast, and we really need all of you to join us on Patreon because we are going to start sharing more and more exclusive content at patreon.com and we are going slash this is hell and we are going to be incurring more and more costs apparently in the building of our studio. Alex, who do we have on the Patreon podcast this week? Uh, this is an industrial organizational psychologist, Kristen Smith Crow, who is author of the report from uh, was that 2015 we talked to her. Uh, Seeing green, mere exposure to money triggers a business decision frame and unethical outcomes. So, to so hear, it's nothing we have to worry about. <laughs> right, exactly. So if you want to hear that and you want to hear me do another monologue, all you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. We still have people to thank, uh, some listeners to thank for sharing This Is Hell and those for supporting This Is Hell. And we want to, uh, you know, tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. This Is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have FFA online. One, two, you know what to do that. The crack in the facade. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I'm going to say this twice. Once here at the top, and a second time near the end. The first time because I think it's something on which everyone who opposes the controlling economic, political, and information system, as it is, can all agree. The second time because I will want to remind us all of its salience in light of what I'm about to lay out, the basis of a unified conspiracy theory of global fascist movements, large and small, in governments and in the streets. This is the statement I wish to color all that will proceed hence. The establishment opposed to Donald Dump believe there is a line below which he sits on his tasteless golden toilet, tweeting his misspelled words and doing his second-tier, day-class-A collar crimes while they look down their noses from their understated, right-thinking, right-acting positions of propriety. What they don't realize is that while they bend over to scold him and dirt-devil up the shards and crumbs of the taco bowl he left on their lovely carpet, Dump is actually their own ass-crack hanging shamefully out of the back of their silk-linen-blend trousers. I'm not arguing that Donald Dump conspired with Russia to break laws and undermine the 2016 election. He and or his crappy family may have done that, and there may be evidence in the Mueller report that warrants further investigation into that. There's certainly the appearance of impropriety, which is one reason there was an investigation in the first place. Hillary Clinton didn't lose the 2016 election because of Bernie Sanders or because of Russia. The British public didn't vote leave because of Russian interference. I want to make it clear that I am in no way pushing those narratives. 
But that doesn't mean Russia's noodling around, egging rightward mischief here and there, while entangled in shady deals for a few million here, a few million there, isn't a dark money connection worth understanding. It is. John Gotti was a tiny little parodic maquette of the larger capitalist system, but he had to be brought down. John Birds wasn't in charge of all racism in Chicago, but he was a problem. And if he could die again much more brutally, that would be a good thing. The premise that, as a wise man named Chuck Mertz has said time and time again, everybody's stupid, seems to apply. There seems to be a mini-consensus among some left radicals or whatever that interference by Russia in our electoral affairs is meaningless and Mueller's investigation was just wasted time, which aligns with the GOP's outlook, ironically. It's, it's even caused other in, otherwise intelligent people to sound like Bill O'Reilly when criticizing the media and their sexing up of Russiagate. Rachel Useful Idiot Maddow is not the entire media. Looking at Russia's bit of aid in the Brexit vote and other international skulking, I would say it's the Russian government's goal albeit in its little way, to fuel right-wing nationalist movements in the West while making deals with dump and dump-style wannabe or wanna-stay rich business criminals to push basho-populist parties, candidates, and policies. They hope to facilitate the slide of uber-capitalism into fascism. It's a definite pattern that qualifies as modus operandi. It likely has them loosely affiliated with Bannon, Gorka, the Northern League, white supremacists in USA, Australia, and National Front nativist fascists in France, Italy, Greece, Spain, Scandinavia. The resuscitation of Nazism and blackshirtism is the underlayment of capital's anti-labor and anti-communitarian movement, progressing like a glacier from Reagan and Thatcher till now. This is its varnish peeling off. When the economy cratered in 2008, revealing its biggest institutions to be unwieldy and dangerously top-heavy monstrosities, unfit for conducting affairs in a stable world society, finance capital knew it had to do something to derail the obvious popular conclusion that they were a Frankenstein that must be split into smaller pieces, their wealth divided into manageable portions that could possibly be doled out to the public. They couldn't have the public discussing wealth redistribution, so they had to revive, or rather exploit the pre-existing condition of, the fascist antipathy toward socialism, progressivism, multiculturalism, and all the other boogeymen of misdirected white male resentment. Seen in this light, the smug left's desire to own the libs regarding Russia is pretty myopic. They should care about this cabal of low-rent tycoon-style gangsters that's populated a layer of power and has a lick-spittle toady in the White House helping move uber-capitalism toward a violent confrontation that is not the violent confrontation we want, or at least not the one I want. Maybe you all want it, I don't know. Of course, Russia didn't start the rise of the right. Of course, they're not the biggest force behind it. Not by a long shot. I'm not even sure they could be called a big force behind it. They're more a little node in it. They didn't hijack our election, although I'm sure they would have loved to, but they did stick their fingers in it. I mean, if you don't connect the rights figurehead, Donald Dump, the cartoon duck with no pants, and his financial entanglements with the Russian oligarchy and Putin, and their desire to seed and see discourse in the West, 
and get how they fall in line with capital's ultimate desires, I think you need to take another look. It's a grotesque little criminal partnership with racist and fascist hatred and the threat of violence as a little fence around it. Gump, who has allowed at least one Russian oligarch to launder millions through at least one of his properties and has multiple questionable real estate deals in that wild west of the East, is just one little player in this racket, but he happens to be the POTUS now. It's dangerous and sickening. Look, Donald Gump is a crook. He pockets taxpayer money through his stupid hotel. Even if that were all he did, I'd want to know about it, and I'd be pissed. But he gives violent Nazi ideologues something to live for and kill for. I can see why some lefties have a problem caring about Russia's contribution to the rising right. They can only think about one thing at a time. If you say Russia had a hand in something, they have to say, no, you need to keep talking about how bad Obama and the Clintons are. Oh, my God! I've talked about how much I can't stand Obama and the Clintons gifting a laissez-faire economy to finance capital, sucking the blood out of communities, enabling monopolies, sending trade makers into the war zones they create to find great opportunities, selling labor down the river. Since this show started, they've set up the finance industry to make me poor and to make the already poor really, really destitute, desperate, and dead. Don't think I don't feel visceral rage about it every day. And yes, Gump is the clownish miniature version of the cruddy misleadership we've had all along. But he's also the clown prince of the fragmented neo-Nazi movement. His name, a talisman in an Australian mass killer's viral polemic. This is a bad global movement. It wants overt colonialism back again. If you think white school kids have it bad, wait till one of those fascists sets off a dirty bomb in a Bolivian metropolis. Yes. The neoliberal project of uber-capitalism has primed the pump for these putches. But this jagoff, this Donald Dump, is the boss now of the shadow that capitalism casts. He's the neoliberal's henchman. He was dandled on the knee of Roy Cohn, himself a grand petty criminal and a natural-born race and red baiter if there ever was one. Putin's a capo in the mob, and he treats Dump like another capo, albeit a kind of Fredo Corleone-type capo, and I don't want Dump to have even that much juice. I want him crushed under a collapsing plaster parthenon of his own gilded garishness. It's an international mafia of creepy anti-communists, anti-socialists, and just plain greedy lawless jerks who are finding each other and feeding the angry white classes below them with more fodder for their racism and eschatological violence. A white working class longing to ignite a race war is a gift to these guys. They love a divided working class. So do the Cox. So do the Clintons. But no one's doing quite the way the dump that dump and Aaron Banks, the insurance and diamond millionaire and rabid pusher of Brexit, do it. Both of whom wish they were richer and aren't embarrassed to get their hands covered in Russian poop to become so. Look. Dump's not clever enough to profit from helping Haiti. He's smart enough to know that helping black people is the last thing his voters want. And they aren't a majority of those voters, so some of them have to be violent, conspiracy enthralled assholes to keep the nonsense level up to 11. That's the only way he wins. Yes, the neoliberals win by making soft progressives believe they are kind and virtuous. These Dumpensteins win by making hard fascists think they have a chance to found a thousand-year Reich on the blood of Jews, immigrants, queer people, and people of color. Of course it's more about money for most of them, except Putin, who really wants to control as much land as possible, because that's what statesmen want, real estate. He's like a real estate tycoon with an army. 
It's a loose affiliation of creeps with common goals that are even worse in the short run than the ones we've gotten used to. I want them taken down, and if possible, to drag the system of which they are a parody down with them. The reason Russia is important is specifically because this is being investigated by the FBI. All these threads are connected, and if the FBI accidentally does its job, partly out of justified malicious feelings toward dump, that might be a chance to learn about nefarious fascist support schemes in other spheres. I might remind you that Donald Dump is the POTUS who hired both Bannon and entangled his own finances in Russia. So if you want to find the hub this whole mess is revolving around at this moment, why not look at the supposedly most powerful position in global politics? I mean, I'm absolutely certain that if threads lead from dump and money laundering to Russia and Deutsche Bank, those threats, threads will connect with National Christian Foundation, the U.S.'s largest Christian charity, Bannon and Bolsonaro and the DOJ and IMF, Marine Le Pen, maybe even Macron and Merkel, and of course Netanyahu and the right wing in Australia and Hungary. I believe both libs and reds have tunnel vision here. This is a global movement of suspicious money funding anti-labor and anti-community operations in all sectors in both hemispheres. The question the ruling, asks, the ruling class asks, whatever deal they're making, whatever legislation they're buying, whatever violence they're facilitating is, how can we conduce actions and policies that will disrupt the efforts of those without money and power to organize and empower themselves. What I think is funny is that establishment types think bringing down dump will rescue the system. What they don't realize, and what I would like to remind our listeners for a second time, is that dump is just their own ass crack hanging embarrassingly out of their jeans. So let's see what's in that report and if it goes anywhere, shall we? It could eventually connect with machinations, the discovery of which will one day force the mask of those in charge of keeping a right and proper face on the kind of interference in public processes that somehow keep happening everywhere. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. And what's really amazing is all those right-wing people, there are people, uh, fascists from Spain, there are people from Russia, there are people from Italy, there are people from the United States. They're all meeting right now in Verona, Italy. And so if you want to know about that, again, go to the article that we discussed with Adam Ramsey, co-editor of Open Democracy UK. You can uh, f- yeah. follow Adam at Adam Ramsey. The article, again, is revealed. Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe, boosting the far right. And unfortunately... That was a great interview. This is not going to get any press here in the U.S. You, I, I, I already got a little in, in Newsweek. No, it did. Earlier. Okay. Not not that in particular, but a the link between a huge Christian charity and money to uh, far-right groups. Right. And, but uh, this is a, yet a different report. And I will share some behind-the-scenes information about it on the Patreon podcast this week. Something really fascinating happened during today's show. So if you want to hear that, you have to go to patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you want to hear my thoughts on Russiagate, I talked about that last week, kind of, on the Patreon podcast. Jeffy, that was a great moment of truth. Thank you so much. Thank you, my darling. Stay beautiful. 
All right, other guests on this week's show. We talked to writer and philosopher Cinzia Ruza. Uh, she's co-author of Feminism for the 99% with uh, past This Is Hell guest Titi Bhattacharya and with upcoming This Is Hell guest Nancy Frazier. You can find out more about uh, Cinzia by following her on Twitter, at Cinzia Aruza. Duncan Tarr and Noor Usabah, they were on to talk about their Commune magazine article, The End of the Line, The Rusting Fossil Fuel Infrastructure of the Upper Midwest Connects the Poisoned Residents of Flint to the Wreckage of Alberta's Oil Sands. You can find that article at communemag.com. Also on today's show, social policy and development studies scholar Andrew Martin Fisher. He is author of Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing Social Justice from Global Development. Uh, also, and again, it was really great hearing from Max Zerngast. Now that he is out of jail, you can find all of Max's work at jacobinmag.org. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Zerngast. Or if you just want to follow his case, you can follow his case at hashtag free Max Zerngast and at free Max Zerngast. Our hangover cure this week uh, was just something stupid from Men's Journal, so you can ignore that because it was in Men's Journal. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is by sharing the entire show or any of the interviews. Thanks this week goes out to Rich Nick Jeffrey, Gorilla Gramophonics, Astrid, Marco, Anarchimedia, James W., Douglas, James Turtle Island Liberation Now, Julie, Brian, and Brandon. And thanks to everyone who shared This Is Hell, however you shared the show. Office hours at Carrie's Lounge this Wednesday, 2251 West Devon from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry, Leo Connell. Alex, what the hell are we doing for the next couple of shows? No clue. No clue. Uh, next week is some sort of archive show. I'll, I'll put together a good one for everybody. Yeah, for the... This is going to be crazy. For the 29th straight year, I'm hooking up with friends of mine. We do this every year, hanging out with friends of mine uh, from my old neighborhood, uh, from high school, from college, from moving here to Chicago oh so long ago, uh, people who I've met from the bar. I've uh, been getting together now for 29 straight years, and I'm going to be doing that again next week, so I won't be here, but there will be a Patreon podcast this week, so make sure you go to subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.